Abed, I've had enough at this list. Doing this stuff isn't fun, it just feels forced. Fine, I'll deactivate Boobatron. But trust me, classic college experiences never happen organically. Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Before we get to the show, let's get the pleasantries out of the way. First of all, our website. If you want more information about our little podcast, go to wearethecontrarians.com. That's where you'll find links to our old episodes, to our Patreon channel, and to our awesome Contrarians merch. You can show your support by buying a Contrarians mug or a pillow. I like the laptop bags myself. Second of all, if you enjoy the show, tell your friends. Or even go a step further and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Finally, if you want to reach out directly to us, that's what social media is for. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Contrarian Prime, or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. Julio runs our official Twitter account, at Contrarian Prime, but if you want to give me a piece of your mind, or just want to banter about pro wrestling, you can follow me, at Contrarian Alex. That's it. That's our intro. Now, time for the show. And we are recording for Contrarian's Corner for Can't Hardly Wait. Julio, if you edit this portion of it, we got to have the opening guitar riff from Walking on the Sun by Smash Mouth playing. <laughs> Every five minutes. No, 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 just in the beginning here. It, it is a hell of a riff. It was. I remember one of my friends in college uh, in one of his film classes was like, Smash Mouth sucks, but God, it's such a great riff. He used it for like the opening of one of his short films. <laughs> and you're, I don't, know, I don't know about you, but in my case, I knew that riff before I knew who Smash Mouth was. Oh, no. You crazy foreigner. When they <laughs> broke in in the America, the United States, in this country, as Jack Nicholson would say in The Departed, uh, that was like their big hit that started getting radio play. And also they had a music video for it that was... If I remember correctly, they were wearing kind of like 50s digs and whatnot. But yeah, that was when that played on the radio, you know, when I was in fucking sixth grade or something, when you heard that riff, you start cranking it up. The tunes needed to be cranked. (laughs) So hello and welcome to the contrarians where we're right and you're wrong. Just get right to it. Recovering can't hardly wait. And there's some prominent featuring of Smash Mouth in this movie. My name is Alex and joined as always by my co-host and friend Julio. Julio. We're here to talk about Can't Hardly Wait. We have also arrived at a milestone. It is our 150th numeric episode. That's, that's quite a journey. It, it It's special, right? Even though it's not like the 100th episode and it's not the 200th episode, but the 150 is, is a big deal. I guess kind of not as much of a big deal as the the other milestones. It's kind of like the it's the Muppets most wanted to the, the Muppets 2011. It's like it's important, but not as important as if you hit 200 we're gonna celebrate it's it anyway. important yeah we we means we've done a lot it's one of those things of like i know the past few podcasts we've done have been like 148 149 but seeing like 150 in text it's like shit we've been doing this a while and i guess the 
good part about this is we have limitless source material. So we've done 150 and we haven't even, <laughs> we're not even a pimple on the ass of the industry at this point. We still got a lot of ground to cover. Um, but yeah, 150 numeric episodes, all the bonus episodes thrown in there. It's led us to who else, but Ethan Embry. Yep. It, how appropriate. And it, it wasn't even because I, I was throwing some titles at you to, for the big one five Oh, and, uh, this was not one of them. And then you came back with Can't Hardly Wait, and it's just perfect. Ethan Embry. That's, uh, uh, I mean, we've done Empire Records, obviously, and uh, you covered, you did a QVR of a, a horror movie that he starred in. Uh, mm-hmm. And we did uh, That Thing You Do. But, I mean, this is the, the first, would you say this is a, a Ethan Embry vehicle? Yeah, I guess so. He's the main the guy, sense, right? Uh- yeah, yeah, yeah. In in the vein or in the way that like, you know, you would call Breakfast Club a Molly Ringwald vehicle. It's one of those teen comedies that it was several years before we had the Jason Biggs vehicles uh, that <laughs> seemed to keep getting thrown at us. But, but yeah, I mean, that's a good that's a good comparison actually because American Pie is an ensemble, but if if I had to call it uh someone's vehicle, I would say it's a Jason Biggs vehicle because he gets the big scene. He he mm-hmm. fucks the pie. And here, Ethan Embry, he, he has the main story. He's he, he's after Jennifer Love Hewitt. Everybody else is just you know, yeah. I was background while blanks. I was saying that. I mean the the common logic, the the smart money would say that this is like a Jennifer Love Hewitt vehicle, but she doesn't really do much of anything except be hot. Yeah, she shows up uh, in slow motion. That's it. And that is kind of the story of her career. I have not seen any of her later work. I know she's been. She's from Waco. <laughs> God bless. Uh, lauded is that the right word? For, didn't she have that show that everyone was like into for a while? Party of Five. Yeah, Party of Five that came with samples of Tide in the mail when it started. Wasn't that like in '95? It just ran for a few years. Nev Campbell was on that too, right? Nev Campbell, Scott Wolf, uh, Matthew Matthew uh, Lost. What's his name? Matt Fox. Matt Fox. And, uh, you know what's interesting about him? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> and Lacey Chabert. That's right, because we had something recently where we had Lacey Chabert in the discussion. I was trying to remember when Party of Five came up last, but uh, Can't Hardly Wait, 1998, title of the film, named, of course, after The Replacements song. Are you familiar with The Replacements, Julio? <laughs> no, I didn't know. Come on, I Well, you just cleared up a, a big question I had about the movie. Like who? Who is it? Just about can't hardly wait to graduate, to move on, to go to college. To fuck. <laughs> uh, <laughs> in Seth Green's case, it's to fuck. Yeah. Released June twelfth of nineteen ninety eight. Budget of estimated thirteen million dollars for a box office return of a little under twenty six million dollars. Absolutely one of the beloved party movies, high school teen movies of our lifetime, specifically of our generation, Julio. It's you don't find many people uh older than us that reference this movie and vice versa. It's kind of a moment in time type of affair. Is it like uh is it like Eurotrip? I think it's got a <laughs> that is what I would call a cult fan base. Because like <laughs> you were the first person I ever met that loved that movie. Well <laughs> loved Past tense. <laughs> My enthusiasm for Eurotrip decreased a little bit after we actually covered it on the show. We got some good stuff out of it. Yeah, no, I, I love parts of it now. 
The film was initially rated R by the MPAA with their objections about the depicting of teens drinking alcohol at an unsupervised party and drug use <laughs> somewhere. Uh, Steven Spielberg had his hands rolling in a Vanderlei Silva-like fashion saying, I can do whatever I want and they will rate my movie PG-13. <laughs> so somewhere down the line, he's going to make a movie with teens drinking alcohol in an unsupervised party with gluttonous drug use. And they'll give it to him no matter what. He's he got just Lincoln waiting. PG-13 rating. Yeah, he, he just wants to drop it at the right time. Can Wait by Steven Spielberg. <laughs> I was going to say he's waiting for, for the 80s or the, or the 90s to be considered historical enough. Oh God! You can just that's make coming. It I was watching this, thinking that, dude, that's coming. Of where, like, there's going to be a movie made like this, where it's like, you know, uh, we talked about Licorice Pizza, how that was like PTA, a moment in time for him in his life. <laughs> a movie like Can't Hardly Wait's going to be made, where it's you know some young filmmaker be like, oh yeah, I was like six when this happened. And it's like <laughs> Jesus Christ, dude. So. Here, episode 150, Can't Hardly Wait, 40% on Rotten Tomatoes? Is that yep. what I saw? This is what we call, here in the industry, a gray area episode. <laughs> here on the block, we call this a gray area episode. Because here on The Contrarians, we rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. That is our battle cry. Find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated. A lot of times known as certified fresh. I think we figured out recently why some movies are certified fresh. We deduce that it's the amount of reviews they get. If that's incorrect, someone let us know. You'd think we would have like enough motivation to actually look it up, but <laughs> <laughs> no, you'd be surprised. Here's a here's a peek behind the scenes. As soon as we stop recording, we stop thinking about Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> uh, with those highly rated movies, with those certified fresh movies, what we'll do is break them down, bring them down to size discuss maybe some of the uh, aspects of it that aren't that good, be it writing, acting, uh, the overall presentation, things critics may have swept under the rug or just flat out overrated. And then conversely, we'll find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is lowly rated. A lot of times eh, we shoot for about 30% and below. And what we'll do with that is, just as you imagine, hype it up, talk about the good acting in it, some of the bold choices of storytelling, direction, cinematography, whatever we can find to show that you can be as over the moon about anything as you want to be, or you can be as cynical or negative about anything as you want to be. Uh, also, that shit is subjective, and that Rotten Tomatoes doesn't tell the whole story. That comprises the first half of our podcast known as Contrarian's Corner. Julio, if listeners want to know how we really feel about the movies we're discussing, they just have to hang around till the second half. That's correct. The second half of the show, aptly titled Real Talk, is where we tell you how we really feel. This is where uh, we find out about our true feelings along with the audience. Sometimes we cover movies that we've referenced time and again, so we kind of have a pretty good idea of uh, what Real Talk is going to be like. And sometimes uh, it's movies that we are watching for the first time or that we haven't seen in a while so real talk is more of a, a novelty a journey of discovery as far as how our co-host uh feels in this case can't hardly wait ethan embry the 90s i fully expect alex to just salivate and drool all over this movie in real talk and i don't know what he thinks i'm gonna do i'll just say that i hadn't watched this movie in at least 10 years maybe longer i forgot how much of this i knew and how much of i, I quoted it fairly regularly friend of the podcast Eddie straight and i would quote some stuff from this regularly when working together uh specifically the really uh 
hyper positive character that comes up and you know remember that time that guy at one point in the movie he goes bullcorn like instead of bullshit and i remember eddie and i laughing in box office really hard one time talking about that uh julio uh, we set the table there and now we're gonna you know flip the script immediately and saying that this is episode 150 and on our installments our 10th installments every 10 episodes we find what you referred to a bit earlier as a gray area episode that doesn't really fall within the parameters of what we typically do. That means between 40 and 60%. The first gray area episode, episode 10, was Natural Born Killers, and I'm pleased to see how far we've come uh, <laughs> since then. Being that Can't Hardly Wait is 40%, falls into the gray area, and on our gray area episodes, what we do is we split the duties. One of us will be on the defense, and one of us will be on the attack. The last one we did, 140, which one was it, Julio? That was your beloved pain and gain. Ah, yes, in which I defended and you attacked. So we're going to be reversing course here. Uh, I will be attacking one of my beloved 90s films while Julio will be defending it, which I find funny because he usually has beef with movies like this. I don't. I guess they're not depressing enough or something. <laughs> At the same time, it's Ethan Embry, so... This should, be, this should be easy. I think I got the easy job this time. It is Ethan Embry, the patron saint of the contrarians, but everyone is in this movie. <laughs> it's true. If you were an actor in the 90s and you were not into Can't Hardly Wait, it's just because they cut you out of Can't Hardly Wait. But you were there. You were at that party. <laughs> yeah. One of my notes is, God, everyone is in this. It just doesn't end. And we'll be calling them out as we go along. So as is tradition, Julio wrangles up some quotes from Rotten Tomatoes for us. So Julio, the critics were close to split on this. Did you catch how many actual reviews there were for it? Looks like we have 62. Uh, oh, that's less than I thought. <laughs> eh, it's a good amount. Not enough to be certified rotten, but uh, enough. Uh, 40% tomato meter score with an audience score of 63% based on over 50,000 ratings. Yeah, it's it's Man. it's gray area either way. Yeah, I get a few quotes, a couple of fresh ones, a couple of rotten ones, just to keep it on that that gray scale. And starting with uh, Janet Maslin from the New York Times uh, with a fresh quote, and she says, "Flip through any yearbook, and you'll find the stock characters who amusingly populate the teenage comedy can't hardly wait." Do you think that's true, Alex? Do you flip through your yearbook and you're like, "Oh yeah, there's Seth Green, there's Melissa Joan Hart, there's Ethan Embry." Um, I don't know. We had this discussion on, uh, I cannot remember what film we did before where we talked about how high school was really not that important to either of us. So I don't even, Heathers. yeah, that, that sounds right. And it'll come up again in this episode. Uh, but <laughs> I don't remember the last time I looked at my high school yearbook or even if I like know where it is, if I wanted to, did you sign it for someone, anyone? Of course. I mean in the like in the moment you you go through the pageantry. But uh <laughs> again my high school experience was a little bit different than this. My graduating class was I think uh literally one tenth of uh what was in this movie because they I think she said their class was five hundred and twenty two. Mine was fifty two. It doesn't really it's not about the numbers, it's about the the quality of the party that you throw. Again. That, that that didn't come till college. I was way more of an American Pie 2 kind of guy. You were Jerry O'Connell in this movie. Minus the warts on my feet, yes. 
Uh, all right. Alicia Potter from Boston Phoenix with a rotten quote says, despite flashes of body humor, can't hardly wait. It's just like it's beer. It starts out frothy, but soon goes flat. When do you think Alicia okay. Potter decided that the beer was flat or had gone flat? Was it when uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt made her appearance in slow motion? Perhaps in one of her three diatribes, her like three <laughs> attempts at an MTV Breakthrough Performance Award. <laughs> Probably when she saw Selma Blair was in it and then they didn't do anything with her. Like, fuck this. Hey, it's uh fuck. What's her name in Hellboy? Liz something. Hot. Hot. Liz Hot. I mean she she has the fire powers, so yeah. Cruel intentions, Selma Blair. I don't I don't want to get into real talk. <laughs> I was gonna say something that was very, very revealing. Liz Sherman. Oh, there you go. Liz Sherman. I fuck I fucked it up. I should have been like, oh yeah, Abe Sapien. <laughs> Uh, all right, fresh quote from Widget Walls from NeatCoffee.com, who says, essentially, a John Hughes piece on speed. I hate that, like... I mean, it's a, it's a that... fresh quote, so it, it's a good thing for Widget Walls, oh, okay. at least. But but I don't know, I, I mean, did you think John Hughes when you were watching this? Yes. You did? This is like, yeah, this and uh, Empire Records, isn't. it doesn't lean enough into the high school aspect of it to really qualify as like a John Hughes thing. But yeah, that we could use a hell of a lot more movies like this now that we could, the world could use more John Hughes on speed attempts in it currently. But yeah, this, this felt like a, a 90s, like what would have been an updated version of the time of what a John Hughes movie would have been. Now, don't get me wrong, this ain't on the same plateau as ferris bueller or breakfast club but the spirit was definitely there well i guess i just i just think of john hughes movies as slow can hardly wait so i always i have it backwards well that's also what i'm saying is <laughs> like that you know how i always talk about how no one has patience for anything anymore it had already kind of slowly degraded by that point so you had to speed things up a little bit but uh <laughs> The classic John Hughes high school movies, I think the fingerprints of that are on this. Well, speaking of John Hughes, Michael O'Sullivan from the Washington Post gives us our final quote, a rotten one, and he says, John Hughes must be spinning in his grave. Do you think so? No. I, I'm not sure Like he would care enough. I think he'd have a good time. He'd appreciate it. Or he would come, he's an adult, he would come out of it saying, that wasn't for me. I have better things to do than spin in my grave. It's not like it was a remake or something. It's, you know, that whole thing about John Carpenter calling Rob Zombie's Halloween a piece of shit. Like, <laughs> he's he has grounds to do that because he made the original one. It's not like they tried to remake 16 Candles with the Shermanator. You know, it's <laughs> it is what it is. I fired up my DVD of this earlier today. Uh, it's one of those old school DVDs that is double sided. One side's the widescreen and one side's the full screen. Do you have any like that? Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, I hate them, but yes, <laughs> I do. God, you are the worst. <laughs> give me two discs or just give me widescreen. I have no use for, for the full screen. That's the fucking point. Some people did when that was originally released. Well, I have no time for those people. <laughs> The worst, one of the worst days of my entire life was I was wanting to watch T3, and I knew I had the DVD of it, and I got it off the shelf, and it was the full screen version. I cried <laughs> myself to sleep that night. Uh, I had the same thing happen to me with Elizabethtown, I think. Oh, no. I was like, nope. 
<laughs> I, at, at that moment, I don't remember what I was doing, but I had to go and get the widescreen, like go buy it because it was just, it was going to bother me until I fixed it. It was all about the experience, Julio. I think technically it would be more expensive to make one double-sided DVD than just to print two off. Uh, so they put in the effort for us. And, man, when this thing started up, I was like, Jesus, DVDs used to be good. It was clearly a film transfer. Quality was fantastic. I was thinking about it. I think it was the five, What is it? The five-year engagement. Is that that Jason Siegel movie? With uh, Emily Blunt? Yes. Yeah. Good movie. But I think I remember that being the one where I bought the DVD and I put it in. I was like, this is shit. <laughs> it was just like a fucking MPEG that they put on a disc and sold to me. Uh, so, you know, you have Blu-rays, which are basically the modern equivalent of what the original run of DVDs were in terms of effort and presentation. So I was very happy watching this uh, on a DVD that was a good film transfer and added to my list of why I'm a curmudgeon. <laughs> and uh, it used to be better guy. Do they have a uh, special features? It did. It has uh, an audio commentary, which we haven't credited the directors yet. We've got Deborah Kaplan and Harry Elfont written by that duo as well. Um, so it had the commentary photo gallery. I don't know if you remember back in old DVDs, sometimes I would have like actor bios mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And then, um, the, the music video for Can't Get Enough of You Baby by Smash Mouth. Because it's like we talk about a lot on here uh, from movies from the 80s and 90s. It was one of those music videos that had clips from the movie interspersed in it. So I turned it on after the movie was over and that song plays in the credits. And it, I, I got about a minute into it. I was like, I can't listen to this song again. <laughs> Overdosing on Smash Mouth. There are worse ways to go, Alex. Looks like that same uh, duo, Kaplan and Elfon, also directed... Uh, the 2001 Josie and the Pussycats with, uh, what's her name? Um, Rachel Lee? Cook. Rachel no. Lee Cook. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> she had a threefer. And, uh, Tara Reed, may she rest in peace. Uh, Sharknados. Tara Reed. Rosario Dawson. Alan Cumming. Man, what a time to be alive. <laughs> so something I did not appreciate, though, was the opening credits of this movie, Julio. The, and I mean that literally. I don't mean the sequence. I mean the font was ugly and it was that real-time clip, black title screen, real-time clip, black title screen. And every time it had a different color on the font and it was it annoyed the shit out of me. I know this is we're already starting very pedantic, but this was very troubling to me. I, um, I mean, I'm going to take your word for it because I was just taken in every new credit that came up i i wasn't i wasn't tracking the the font the color anything i was just absorbing the information like the names that kept coming up i I was just mesmerized because it's i remembered ethan embry i remember jennifer love hewitt and that's about it like i i didn't remember any of the other people that are in this movie and uh i I remember that it was about a party and uh, it, it was just who has time to worry about what it looks like when you're just being <laughs> regaled with this buffet of actors, young actors, some of whom I hadn't seen in a long time. So it was a little bit of a reunion as well. Fuck Seth Green. I haven't, <laughs> I don't know when the last time I watched an episode of uh, Robot Chicken, but it's been that long. 
And that was just his voice. So the main takeaway here, Julio, from the opening credits is we get the introduction to our main players in, a, in an almost A-team-like style uh, where we get quick bios on, I believe it's the five main characters being Preston, Amanda, Denise, Mike, Kenny, and William. So that's six. Uh, Ethan Emery, Jennifer Love Hewitt, Lauren Ambrose, Peter Fasanelli, mm-hmm. Seth Green, and Charlie Corsmo, respectively. Additionally... As far as plot goes, the main takeaway from the opening sequence of this is that Mike Dexter broke up with Amanda Beckett. What kind of idiot breaks up with his high school girlfriend? You do that the day before you go to college. You don't do that the day you graduate. You still got to have sex the whole summer, dude. Yeah, but that's uh, – I think the movie explains that – well, one, that Mike is, is an idiot. And two, yes. that he planned to have sex all summer, just not with her. He He, he wanted to spread himself around as thin as he could. And then go to college. Yeah, it looked like everyone in that town was already taken, though. he Not much going on upstairs. I don't think he really thought out his plan very well. Actually, no. His plan is, because that's what he wants to do with his boys, his plan is to be single so he can just, you know, bro it up all summer and then go have sex in college. I mean, as one does. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sometimes it, 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 he must have been uh, just tired of having sex. It happens when you're that popular. <laughs> I mean, you're a popular teenager. You've never heard just of teenagers. Too much sex. Yeah, he's like, I'm sorry, man. Just, I can't no. get late anymore. No. I, I need a summer break. No. <laughs> I, I speak from experience. It does not exist at that point in your life. <laughs> now it does. Like one time a month and I'm like, all right, that's enough. But <laughs> Make it count. <laughs> yeah. Or light a candle. <laughs> put some boys to men on in the background. We'll make a night of it. But You're like a... That, you're Tom Hanks at the end of Saving Private Ryan. You're like, earn this. <laughs> that, I'm also like him in the sense <laughs> if I had tried to have sex more than twice in one night, just like shooting at the tank. Just like, <laughs> Your hand is work. shaking. <laughs> <laughs> My note here uh, says state of this soundtrack because it, I just like yelled because it starts with uh, Eve 6 and then we get the first dan 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 of Walking on the Sun. <laughs> As 35-year-old high school freshman Ethan Embry recounts the first time he met Jennifer Love Hewitt. She showed us she was the new girl at school, and he thinks there's some cosmic bond between them because they both were eating uh, cherry Pop-Tart uh, yeah. for breakfast. And I think it's, it's adorable that the movie conceals Jennifer Love Hewitt's face as if we don't know <laughs> that that's her. They've already shown her. No, 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 they haven't, excuse me. No, they haven't, but the, uh, but the movie poster is... She's like I think in the middle, you know that it's it's Jennifer Love Hewitt, and uh, but they do that thing that's right. where uh, she doesn't she doesn't get her big reveal until the party, right? Right, yeah. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. but the movie is just still I appreciate that that they they're still playing along with the conceit. You know, this is not about really shielding her from the audience. It's just more about keeping the mystery because they know that this movie eventually is going to be be watched by somebody decades later that doesn't know who Jennifer Love Hewitt is and so this is going to be a big reveal and when she shows up on the screen they'll nudge their friend next to him and say that's the chainsaw (laughs) (laughs) there's always I think that there's something to that quote that that I read earlier about the how this movie is populated by the type of people that you would find on your yearbook because to to some extent I mean that's true that the Ethan Embry character I think that there's several variations of him in every high school and, and I think that as you move through through your education years, you, at, at some point you have to, 
to occupy that spot of the guy that falls for somebody that's completely out of his league. And that's what's happening here. And that's that, that makes it very relatable that they make this the the centerpiece of the movie. Yeah. Uh, this kid that has spent years building up this fake relationship with with this gorgeous girl that doesn't even know he exists. And uh, you cast the wrong person uh, in this role, and you have a really creepy stalker movie. But you cast Ethan Embry, and that's it. <laughs> Instant success. As, as has been discussed extensively on the contrarians throughout their history, Ethan Embry is the right call for almost any role. Pretty much. We we just did a movie uh, that is a failure on almost every level, but it has Ethan Embry. And then at least you can say, hey, it has Ethan Embry. <laughs> yes. We even try to be like, yeah, he wears a hat. He looks good in it. He speaks Spanish. He does. I think one of our knocks on that thing you do was there wasn't enough Ethan Embry. Yep. So, you know, there's a material to back these claims up here. But also, um, I mean, he is kind of playing against type the, the and i don't even know back then back in the you know mid 90s oh what what year is this 99 98 98 okay in, late 90s yeah late 90s i mean i don't know if he had developed the the ethan embry persona to the extent that he has now but because yeah he already done empire records which is pure Ethan Embry, right? But at the same mm-hmm. time, was it that weird in 98 to see him play uh, a kind of a regular guy, an audience surrogate? Because we've seen him go on to just the standard Ethan Embry role now is just very out there, very extroverted. Yeah, he's not very manic or um, like goofy in this. No, he's, that, he's a dreamer. Yeah, but that's they're not using him to his strengths. It would be my argument here. No, but he's, he's, that's, that's what's beautiful about it, that they allowed him to, to play different shades of, of his persona and it still works because he's still, it kind of proves that Ethan Embry doesn't need to be manic in order to, to carry a movie. He could just lay back and, and let the craziness happen around him and it still works. Uh, this was his Spencer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is his Hangover 3 and he's, uh, Bradley Cooper. As our main players are established, we basically get like these yearbook cards for each of them. And it states, you know, what clubs and sports and activities they took place in and uh, throughout their time at their high school. Uh, the only reason I'm explaining this is because one of the best jokes in the movie, one that I actually like roaringly laughed at, was when we get Seth Green's uh, card, Kenny Fisher, uh, <laughs> under sports played at Liz Varsity Basketball, and then parenthetically says one game. I. <laughs> I don't know why, but that made me laugh really hard. We get this when they're at the, he's at the gas station with his boys, and they're, for lack of a better term or expression, the Eminem types, uh, or what Eminem was labeled as in the his original coming out, which was like a white guy who thinks he's black, dresses with the baggy pants and uh, all the trappings. One of his friends uses the F word, and the, being the one that we don't use on this, and being where we are in just society in general, I don't know about you, but it's pretty jarring to hear that in a movie. Because it's not the the only character that does it. I mean, it, it kind of the... the One of the biggest punchlines in the movie is someone randomly shouting it. Yes. Th- there is homophobia throughout. It's like an undercurrent throughout uh, Can't Hardly Wait. And I think it's 
it kind of serves you. It anchors you in the nineties because that's that's what the nineties were. We've we've come a long way <laughs> in twenty twenty two. I mean, we can look back and be like, yes, almost twenty five years ago, this is what we, as a society, considered acceptable comedy. <laughs> you know, it's it's. I I think that for the most part, it's not overdone, and I I think that the movie is actually kind of caught in this transition where they try to use. The, the idea of somebody being gay as a punchline, but at the same time also trying to be some characters either by accident or by design are actually kind of open-minded much, much later in the movie when Jenna Elfman makes her, her star appearance. She kind of seems pretty okay with the idea of Ethan Embry pining after Barry Manilow. Just like there's no judgment there. There's no uh, making a big deal about Ethan Embry maybe being gay. And so. So it's not like the movie is malicious about gay. It's more like it's it's kind of clueless about being gay. Yeah, it's not great, but it's the '90s, man. That's just uh, it's part of our history, and and might as well just own it. You can't edit it out. It's just that's just the movie that was made, and at the time that was, you know, that was what we laughed at, and uh, I think it's good actually. It it's a uh, reassuring that it's jarring when we watch it now. It kind of. You know, serves to show us how far we've come. We get our first glimpse at Chris Owen, who plays Klepto Kid. Shermanator. The, the Shermanator, that's right. And would you believe it is his third time appearing on The Contrarians? What? <laughs> <laughs> he was in Black Sheep and Ready to Rumble, two of your favorite movies that we've covered. I, I knew that we talked about him, but I didn't realize that it happened twice. In both times in terrible movies. <laughs> Just blocked out of your brain. Yeah. Uh, yes. One of the favorite sons of the late 90s, early 2000s. The Shermanator uh, has no dialogue in this. He's just his punchline as he shows up and steals shit. He doesn't need dialogue. He's a Shermanator. That's what made the Shermanator so great was he had dialogue. He tells um, Nadia, who was the, the hottie? I mean, there's a lot of hotties in American Pie, but who was the Shannon Elizabeth? Yes. Yeah, he gives her the big Terminator speech. It's wonderful. So we make it to the party. The, the whole movie's built to this party. That's There's a party going on at uh, not necessarily one of the cool kids' house. Molly Stinton, the party host. And we arrive. Melissa Joan Hart. Nothing warms my pardon the pun heart more than seeing her. It puts me right back in the midst of the 90s. Uh, gets an uncredited appearance in this as this really sentimental, nostalgic student who wants every senior to sign her yearbook. This is where I said she drops. She's going to get all 522 signatures from the the seniors that graduated. Julio, what was your graduating class of high school? Oh, pff, dude, that, that 522 people is like the entire population of Peru. So that no, we were <laughs> okay. All joking aside, I think it was like 40 per classroom. There were three. So 120, probably less. Than I that. don't, I guess it's just my experience. Was I enjoyed going to a smaller high school? I don't know how people do that. Like I've talked to people that like from Houston. Like yeah, my high school class was a thousand people. We fucking had graduation at the Compact Center. I'm like, well, that sounds like a fucking nightmare. Um, but Melissa Joan Hart is here, someone who's infinitely more interesting than a lot of people in this movie. And of course, she's only used as a background player. <laughs> was she? Un- I didn't realize she was uncredited. I-, I guess I imagined her name in the credits. <laughs> Uncredited appearances, Jenna Elfman, Jerry O'Connell, Melissa Joan Hart, Brecken Meyer. Brecken Meyer, I knew uh, for a fact. I was like, I didn't mm-hmm. see that name. <laughs> uh, Amber Benson and Jennifer L. C. Cox. I recognize Amber Benson. 
So, Alex, I, I mean, what is your history with Melissa John Hart? Because I, I feel like I, not that I watched a lot of her work, but I know her from uh, her Nickelodeon days. And yeah, that's Clarissa explains it all in um, Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Yep. Yeah, uh, it, it's kind of bittersweet to see her here in the, you know, playing a, a young adult before she went on to, man, I think she's in a, is it God's Not Dead? One of the God's Not Dead movies, maybe? Oof. And so seeing her show up here and uh, can't hardly wait. And it's not like she has a big role, but she has a funny role. And she's just mm-hmm. completely giving it herself, giving herself to it. So it was it was a joy to see it. More Eve 6 plays. Uh, we get Jessica Biel's boyfriend from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yes. Did you notice oh. Eric? Is it Balfour? Yep. Eric Balfour, okay. he's uh he's eating pot brownies. Yes, he assaults Lauren Ambrose just by licking her face. Because <laughs> his brownie goes flying and lands on her face, and he walks up to her and licks her. On brand. Has he ever played somebody that's likable? <laughs> Touche. Okay, Lauren Ambrose. I can't believe we've gotten this far into the conversation and not acknowledging the best character. Denise Fleming. And yes, well, she's Claire Fisher. That's the thing. If you're like me, a fan of Six Feet Under, she is the the youngest Fisher, the the youngest person in the family. Um, she's Claire, and I saw her here, and you don't really get to see much of uh, Claire Fisher. <laughs> I mean, other than Six Feet Under, I know she's in that movie uh, Wanderlust with uh, Paul Rudd and Jennifer Aniston. And, oh yeah, yeah, she's one of the the people in the commune. And I don't know that I've seen her in anything else, which bumps me out because she is uh she's great in Six Feet Under. She's I mean everybody's great in that show, but you know, she's fantastic. And uh I saw her here and at first I thought that she was gonna be just kind of like most of the other you know, it's like like Melissa John Hart. Oh, like they show up here and there and they have like a bit, but no, she has an arc. She's one of the main characters. So I was I was pretty excited. And I think she is the the real MVP here in the in the movie. I was trying to remember what it was that I had recently seen her in, and I didn't see her, but she's the voice of KW in Where the Wild Things Are. Um, and that was recently our interaction together. <laughs> Similar movie. Yes. Charlie Corsmo. Corsmo? We'll just go with that. William, the the nerd character, not DJ Qualls, <laughs> uh, is going to infiltrate this party. His plan is that Mike Dexter has bullied him for 10 years, he says, you know, and so he's going to get his revenge plan being that they're going to lure him outside the party, jump him, sedate him with chloroform, and then take some incriminating photos of him just to, I don't know, blackmail extortion. It doesn't sound, the intentions aren't good for someone who's really smart. This is a really bad plan (laughs) back at the party. The red sea splits as Amanda Beckett, Jennifer love Hewitt shows up this point. We're basically in need of like a big shop fan. (laughs) <laughs> and then kind of just some stars around the camera as it pretty much goes into slow motion. It does go into slow motion when she shows up. And, the original yeah. J-Lo. That's, that's how you make an entrance. And everyone's like, oh, my God, I can't believe she's here. I mean, she's really hot. Her <laughs> little name card, her high school quote, I can't remember what it was, but it was from Jewel. That made me laugh. <laughs> uh, but everyone can't believe that she showed up at this party. You can uh, You can feel the star power when compared to... Everybody else. And I, I mean, she got the end credit, right? And the opening credit. So I think that that kind of sets you up to already feel that she when did. she did. She gets the first credit in the ending, in the closing. In the closing. But at the, at the beginning, 
Because we've been through so much with her up until that point. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I kind of had this this idea that uh, when they were shooting the movie, they kept her separate from everybody else. Like they did with Matt Damon and once again, Saving Private Ryan. Yes. <laughs> yes. Because she she feels like she's in a different category, even though you know technically they're all about the same age. And uh, yeah, she is super attractive, but it, she's not the only attractive person at this party. I mean, there's a lot. Uh, fucking uh, what's fucking her name? Jamie Presley's at the party. Exactly, I was going to say Jamie Presley plays one of her friends. But I think that what you can feel when she walks and she finally gets her big entrance, a big reveal of what Jennifer Love Hewitt lo- looks like, uh, you can feel that she has a career that's on the rise. I think that everybody else <laughs> has already kind of like settled on what they're going to be for the rest of their lives, like the Terminator, or are kind of still not sure like where they are, right? But uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt in, in 98, I guess she was still, you know, she, she was like a hot property that kept getting hotter. So... So she was like the big get, like the big name in this movie. And you can tell she walks in and, and it's telling because she is the only one that's taking this seriously. I mean, I think obviously they tailored the script, I guess, to to enhance this. But uh, she's the only one that feels like an adult, I feel like, you know, what I mean, like she's having her her discussions with people and she, she gets the Oscar clips. It's a it's, it's pretty fascinating to watch when her friends come to console her like, you're great. You don't need him. Uh, I specifically took note there was a 12 Monkeys reference in one of their speeches in their diatribe. And my co-host, that's one of his favorite movies. So I was like, oh, he's going to love that shit. I did. Well, I I just love the fact that almost 25 years ago, you you still – we had Brad Pitt as kind of one of the markers of hotness. And 25 years later, it's still the same. He's still (laughs) – But arguably even more so. Yep. It's even more uh, impressive now. We have the introduction of Love Burger. They're the band that's it's basically the Mike Wazowski bit with them the whole time. They want to play, but every time they get set up to something happens. And at first here it's an argument over the wardrobe they're gonna wear. But the lead singer, played by Brecken Meyer, who in two years would go on to make a vastly superior teen comedy and road trip. And of course, Turk, Donald Faison who we're supposed to believe is a high school student, keep in mind. <laughs> hey, if you believe the- it in Clueless, uh, and this is a Clueless reunion, by the way, because Breck Meyer and Turk were, were together there. It, it was already unbelievable in that. <laughs> I still, like, every time I think about the movie, I think it's college, because I'm like, who the fuck thought Alicia Silverstone was a high school student? <laughs> uh, I mean, times have changed, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> You, you know, I'm, I'm disgusted for how much you hounded on Grease for this, where it's almost as egregious here. Not the guy who played Sonny. I'll give you him. <laughs> but Potsy and Duty and the rest of them would fit right in here at this party. No, as the parents, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> as the older brother that's buying beer. Yes. Uh, yeah, you can recast any of them as uh, in the Jerry O'Connell role at the end. Yeah, that I would buy. That'd be so good as Travolta. And it's like, ah, oh, geez, I'm only 19. Uh, so Seth Green's going through this party. He's wanting to have sex, and he's just striking out over and over again, trying to hit on these women. Uh, he ends up finding one that is going to lower herself to let him put his hands on her. So he has to go get ready. Again, horribly unrealistic. I don't know about that age, that situation. You say jump, I say how high. No, but see, you're forgetting. This is you're showing your age. 
and, and just how much you've gone through uh, sexually. Because th- there is, when you haven't had sex at all, you you don't you want to make the best first impression so i understand that that feeling of like because he doesn't know you know it's like once you've had sex then you you know that yeah no you don't have to like fucking perfume yourself every time or anything but but he this is a kid you know and so he he has to uh, 10 years from now he'll learn that you don't even have to kiss when you do it (laughs) exactly (laughs) you don't have to take your socks off but here Here he is, uh, you know, he, he just wants to make sure that because it's not just about sex, it's about status and about what she's going to tell everybody else after. Right. So, of course, he, he has a way in his head. He has it planned the way that the way it has to go. And yeah, he's not the smartest person, uh, but I understand where he's coming from, at least. Uh, it's kind of like uh, one of uh, Mike Dexter's friends, who, by the way, is also a Six Feet Under alum, Fred Rodriguez. He's the the kid okay. that uh, doesn't break up with his girlfriend because uh, he's like, well, you know. Well, none of them do, but yeah. Yeah, none of them. But he's the one that doesn't break up with her because her parents are out of town. And so he's like, they have mirrors in the room. But- <laughs> like, mirrors are exciting when you're, like, that young. You know, as time goes on, that that's just who has time for mirrors and so it's the same thing like these i love that these are teenagers and yes they may be played by actors that are older than that but the the motivations the way of thinking you know the, the their personalities they're very much reflective of their teenage years so seth green goes to this bathroom to get ready it's this bathroom upstairs the party's breaking down it's just devolving into chaos lauren ambrose comes up to use that bathroom as well Goes in, sees him doing God knows what to get his cock ready for what's about to happen. And (laughs) in like a fit of shock, shuts the door behind her and the knob comes out with it. So they're locked in there. We learned we we learned early in the movie they they knew each other from you know when they were younger. It clear this this whole movie in town reeks of one of those. It's not a city; it's a town where everyone knows everyone and they've all gone to school together the whole time, which is. If I ever have children, that's not something I'm going to put them through. They may go to three different places where that's the case, but I, I've just never understood the appeal of that at all. You want to broaden their their horizons? You want to make sure that they know as much of the population of that city as, as you can? No, man, you got to get them. You know, they have to build relationships throughout the decade plus they'll, they'll be in school. Okay. I know. I just think about like where I grew up and if I had stayed there, how much not better my life would be right now. So... <laughs> But see, it works out for the people in this movie. Like, Some of them. <laughs> well, we don't even know that. I mean, it's it's high school. This shit doesn't last. <laughs> At the very least, you have to acknowledge that Seth Green as a character, probably even as an actor as well, uh, is is comes out a better person at the end of this movie. Because specifically because of his relationship with Lauren Ambrose and what that character does for him. So that is a positive that you know just happens because of that very special relationship that this guy has with this girl that goes back so many years. So there's some benefits to just being around the same people for an extended period of time. Uh, this is also you know you're you're watching these kids you know on the on the verge of a major uh, upheaval in their lives. They're about to go to college, so I don't think we should judge them for. <laughs> For, you know, celebrating their closeness one last time. I mean, so many of them are probably never going to see each other again. He came out better because, yeah, she picked the bar up off the ground and set it on like a a fucking chair. (laughs) 
<laughs> a stool. She's like, all right, here, now you're better. <laughs> Mike Dexter's roaming around the party just looking for some trim and just thinking that he's charming and everyone knows he's an asshole. We get a Selma Blair. It's not a cameo. We get Selma Blair. I have it in all caps here. Again, someone who's awesome that should have been used more than she was in this movie. No need. She's like the Shermanator. Just come in, say hi. A little bit of rattlesnake venom will get you. Yeah. Rile them up and then walk away. Interspersed with the things we're talking about are like Preston psyching himself up to go tell Amanda how he feels about her. And then also these god awful Jennifer Love Hewitt scenes of her giving these speeches about, (laughs) I just need to be me. And uh, you don't know what it feels like. Everyone's looking at me and it's not good. You're, you're, you're watching this through uh through the male gaze alex those like when jennifer love hewitt shows up you're like oh she's hot but then you're like oh but she bores me whenever she starts talking come on man <laughs> give me a little more <laughs> more woke uh imagine if you were a girl watching this movie right this would be actually a pretty inspirational uh arc the the hot girl that surprise she's actually not happy and she was not happy in a relationship because she just did what she thought she was supposed to do and through this party this this crazy night uh she slowly realizes that uh there's more to her than dating the popular guy uh, and also that not every person that thinks she's attractive is a creep eventually she finds her her prince charming Ethan Embry. You know, th- not everybody can identify with Ethan Embry or even with Lauren Ambrose, who's you know kind of like way too cool. You need somebody uh, to to give pretty popular girls a relatable angle, and that's what Jennifer Love Hewitt is doing here. Lauren Ambrose's speech is good. I'll give you that. I found her speech to be empowering on multiple levels, where she put Seth Green in his place about because that's shit. A lot of us live through is having friends as kids, and then they grow apart in some cases because they act like they're too cool for you so uh i think she's a more capable actress at least at this point in time she was than um jlh Uh, but this all culminates what we're talking about with preston coming up and professing his love to amanda and she doesn't know who he is and so she just fucking cuts the hard time promo on him and (laughs) tells him to go fuck himself and that he's disgusting and uh you know leave me alone Keep in mind, she found this letter he wrote her, this letter that he's been carrying around for years on end, uh, that he threw away because he thought it was a lost cause. And the Smash Mouth. It found uh, letter. Yes. <laughs> do 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 do. <laughs> it found its way back to her. She read it, so she wants to find this Preston guy. She's so daft, she doesn't even realize that Preston is right in front of her. She just tells him to fuck off. <laughs> okay. She doesn't but- realize it until. <laughs> But that's context, Alex, context. She runs into him after having, I don't know, 15 dudes telling her that they want to hook up with her. Because once it becomes very clear that she's single at the party, that everybody, including the the bullcorn guy, they're just like, hey, what the fuck? So, of course, when Ethan Embry shows up and he's like, man, I love you, it it seems to her that he's just one more, you know, one more uh, creep uh, trying to get laid. So, no, I understand. I think that the movie does a well enough job setting her up as 
this person that has the the curse of being popular fucking teenage boys you know they're just horn dogs so you're constantly harassed and i think that uh, mike dexter might have been a piece of shit but at the same time was the, the one thing that was keeping these kids at bay and then once he's out of the equation it's like open gates were open baby <laughs> yeah the cum gates were open yep i think that what hurts the the Amanda character, Jennifer Love Hewitt, is that unlike everybody else, she doesn't get to be funny because she's just trapped in the most serious plot line of the, of the movie. But she's still like, she is relatable. I mean, it's a, it gave me a glimpse into like, oh man, it sucks, right? It's like, you would think that it's, every day is just paradise when you're like a popular uh, teenage girl, but instead it's like, no, you're just, it's a lot of work. So, Lauren Ambrose, you know, she's, She's more relatable in that sense because her problems are more of a – she's not popular according to the movie. So she's more like us. <laughs> she's just like, oh, I had a friend and then that friend stopped being my friend. But Jennifer Love Hewitt, I mean, she has a, a harder job because she has to make it relatable when it's just not that relatable. So no, props to her. Keep talking, uh, Jayla. Maybe she did get that MTV award. I don't know. I haven't looked, but I hope she did. So there's a lot that happened in between this. Uh, was, this movie is, the, you got to keep in mind, it's like six different stories that are intertwined. So in between this, Preston, in a dejected fit of not knowing whether he was going to tell Amanda how he felt or not, goes and just drives and listens to fucking Barry Manilow trying to figure out what he's going to do. And we get this cameo from Jenna Elfman as a stripper, uh, dancer, as she clarifies, why like what was like why I'm jenna elfman sure, or why why a stripper why jenna elfman so is this where is this in her career is this post dharma and greg but pre keeping the faith yeah thank you yeah it's before that but like so this got her the keeping the faith job <laughs> yes uh this was uh height of dharma and greg well there you go that's your answer <laughs> why because of Dharma and Greg, baby, that's a, that's fucking a big deal. Use two million of that and get Jennifer Aniston or fucking Phoebe to show up. What's Phoebe's name? Lisa Kudrow. No man. I mean, too big. <laughs> aiming too Calm high. Calm down. Uh, but she definitely goes for her. You know, the for your consideration best supporting actress performance here. She goes for that Judy Dench gold, baby, where she's on screen for less than eight minutes but still gets an Oscar nomination from it. Okay, but but did you get? I, I get the feeling that you didn't get the symbolism. You know, because she has those wings. Like, she's an angel, even though she's a stripper. And she. Julio, I may have been born. I was not born yesterday, sir. <laughs> I, I was. I'm too daft to pick up on the subtext of can't hardly wait, Julio. <laughs> I, I understand how you cannot enjoy her interaction with Ethan Embry. She's, uh, because she has a turn, right? She comes in and at first she's really rude and interrupts his phone call and, uh, just doesn't seem to care. And then at some point, it, she starts feeling sorry for the kid and she provides advice, shares she's a personal an anecdote story. about meeting Chachi. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, talk about humanizing someone. And then at the, the end, the payoff, the, yeah, the payoff is phenomenal. <laughs> there you go. See, we've arrived at a consensus. <laughs> It was okay. All yeah, the payoff where she thinks is she thinks the whole thing is that he's in love with Barry Manilow, and she's like, "You call him and tell him you love him." It's great. Yeah, and, and like I was like I said earlier, I mean, it, it basically it's the most open minded moment in the movie as far as sexuality goes. You know, you here you have one of the ah. cool characters in the movie very openly saying it's okay for a dude to love another dude. 
I was like, all right, see, so it's not, you know, it, it's fascinating. And to watch she's the one that's heaven sent. Yes. God, God himself is telling you through Jenna Elfman <laughs> that it's okay to be gay. To grow up. Yeah. Everyone love everyone. If, if you can fuck Barry Manilow, go for it. Uh, during Amanda's quest to find Preston, who he is, the line that is quoted most when this movie comes up in my life experience, Julio, is the girl that scorns Jennifer Love Hewitt and is like, of course you wouldn't know Preston. You're too busy. <laughs> it, it pays off with her saying that all the, like, all the people that follow you are just blind sheep. You're like, you are all sheep. Sheep! And then looks at Jennifer Love Hewitt and goes, bah. That's, <laughs> I don't know why, but every time in college this movie came up, someone would always instinctively quote that scene. So that's probably the one I'm most familiar with. Uh, except for the line from this that I always think of is, when Seth Green is asked to sign Melissa Joan Hart's yearbook and he goes, no thanks, no time, and just like pushes her away. <laughs> we get a rendition of Paradise City by the nerd Amazing. kid. Again, this, fuck off. This scene, like the idea of this scene was built upon and perfected in the year 2000 and Road Trip when DJ Qualls get up, gets up and dances to mm, fucking Tricky by Run DMC. No. Don't even. I don't want to hear it. Alex, and you know that this is not my kind of thing. I I am firmly against uh, any sort of uh, karaoke, sing-alongs, whatever in movies for comedic purposes. I think that they're generally nowhere near as funny as they think they are. Uh, they're kind of a cheap joke. You know, you get some dude or some girl up there to sing badly, and that's supposed to be the joke. And if it's a popular song, even better, right? And I don't like it, generally. And I honestly, I, I was afraid when I saw where the sequence was going, I was afraid that I was in for, for some pain. By the 40-year-old the truck driver that comes up and starts playing it? <laughs> yes. But I think that it, there's just so much that works to make it good, to make it unique. Like One of those things is that, one, it takes a while for the crowd to really appreciate the performance like for for a good minute or so of him uh singing uh everybody's looking at him like it's like it's just weird right and i think that as he starts winning us the audience like over with his performance because he he goes for it they slowly start turning you know it's not that oh these kids were these kids were drunk and and from the very beginning they embraced this no it's like at first they think that it's weird and then slowly he goes and he really goes for it i i don't even care much for paradise city as a song and yet he had me singing along by the end of it. By the time that he does the, you know, he jumps to, to body surf, I was just fist pumping. It was, it's just so good. I think that it works also because like, this is obviously something they couldn't have planned. Or maybe they could have. In 2022, I mean, <laughs> Paradise City is just not, you know, it's not the hip tune that it was in, uh, in 98. And so... see. That that's a big thing that I think I need to clarify too. Paradise City belongs in that category with like Slow Ride and Poker Face of like songs that I if like I heard it, I appreciate it, but if I never hear it again in my life, I'll be fine with it. And having to just sit through Paradise City again, I don't know why, but I recently watched uh, the 2002 Guns N' Roses comeback where Axl Rose was really fat <laughs> and he was trying to sing Paradise City on MTV, completely blown up. And at the end of it, he's just like, take me down, show me <laughs> But wouldn't you agree that there is, like, it, it, say, if he had sung Sweet Child of Mine, then that's too much. Yeah. 
You know what I mean? Like Paradise City is. Oh God, that suck. <laughs> yeah. So, but but Paradise City is just like that song was cool like back then. Now it isn't. Now it's just like we know it because it's part of the same album, you know. And and it's and it's an easy, repetitive song. It's just easy to just throw it in there, and it doesn't overshadow the performance. Uh, I think it's a uh, Booksmart maybe, where uh, they sing uh, "You Ought to Know" by Alanis Morissette. And that's you know that song is too iconic. Like that song takes over the the scene. But Paradise City is never going to take over anything. <laughs> so <laughs> it's okay to have it as part of your big musical sequence, and and it gives the the nerd a chance to shine. Like I, I kind of feel bad for that guy because I guess out of everybody, he's the only one that didn't really break out and went on to do other things. There's so little you can do after something like this, though. I mean, he was Jack and Hook. Spielberg? Oh, yeah. He was the kid in fucking Dick Tracy. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Come on, man. Uh, It was Jack Banning and Hook. Um, That's what it is. He was Siggy in What About Bob? I couldn't remember the whole time what, like, I knew him for. Fuck it, man. (laughs) Royalties, baby. Yeah. He was a kid actor. Uh, Let me guess. You haven't seen What About Bob? I have not. Maybe Wait, I will have you not now. seen Dick Tracy with Warren Beatty? I've seen Dick Tracy, but I think of Pacino. I think of Dustin Hoffman. I Madonna. Think of Warren Beatty, Madonna, for sure. I don't think of the I, kid. You don't think of Charlie Corsmo? <laughs> no. Uh, no, yeah. He has a, one of the leading roles in Hook also. So it looks like he just was a kid actor that did some stuff and then did this when he was in his teens and said, I'm good. Went off to college. He, he's probably a very emotionally healthy person right now, too. <laughs> Do you think that they they often like every party in college they would ask him to sing Paradise City? That's probably why he's like fuck. The, he told his agent he's like I'm done. <laughs> I'm out of this. I'm I'm out the game, baby. <laughs> like I was a child. You were supposed to protect me. Roaming the party, making her return to the Contrarians. Liz Stauber. She's one of the gossipy girls. Uh, I don't know if you recognize. She's Russell Hammond's wife and almost famous. Who is she in the? In the movie. she She's one of the girls that's talking like, I heard Amanda paid him $50 a week to act like he was dating her. Okay. Yeah. I, I didn't recognize her, but good for her. Her face is just burned into my memory because my favorite scene in Almost Famous is the one that starts by her asking, who is that girl? Mm-hmm. And so it will, Liz Stomper is like one of the most random actresses that I will just be able to point out in any movie ever just because of how impactful that scene is and how much i love it my note just says lol jerry (laughs) o'connell mike dexter is sitting outside by himself nursing a beer jerry o'connell shows up with a six-pack um of beer not abs i mean he might have he's a good-looking cat (laughs) he's a tomcat off the heels Ooh, i like the continuity here off the heels of scream 2 where he was in college so this makes sense He's a, but he's a college freshman. He was basically the Mike Dexter the previous year. He dropped some truth about as a freshman being unable to really land any success with uh, members of the opposite sex. They just they want to talk, but but it's still like it is. Uh, it's probably the the deepest, most universal statement, uh, at least as far as the male gender goes. Uh, you know, this scene with with Jerry O'Connell where he just uh, in a very gentle way, but also in a very. Uh, uh, truthful like he doesn't you know soften the blow or anything but he explains to mike dexter that there is a 
stark difference between being popular in high school and <laughs> trying to make it in college uh, if you're a guy. Because they're kind of like the the overall arc of the movie, uh, Ethan Embry's story, you know, the core of Can't Hardly Wait, is more of a fairy tale. That it is, uh, I mean, I love it, but it's not realistic. But this moment between Jerry O'Connell and Mike Dexter, it just drips with uh, truthfulness. <laughs> like, this is what life is like. <laughs> and it still manages to be funny because Jerry O'Connell is, you know, he's he's crashing a, a high school party because he can't get laid in college. So he's trying to. I was going to say, like, I love he has it down so pat that just dejected embarrassed walk when he just walks up to Mike Dexter to sit down. <laughs> yep. I get that. My when I had to come home from the summer from college, like I felt like such a fucking loser. And so just seeing, you know, Jerry O'Connell just like um back here for now. I just have truth written on my notes from him. But then when they uh Mike Dexter tells him, Man, all the all the girls still talk about you. He's like, really? Who? <laughs> Which one? Yeah, he's looking around. <laughs> Has that smile on his face like ah to be young and he walks away by sharing the bit of advice of bring rubber shoes for the communal showers i got warts all over my feet thankfully i never i stayed in a dorm but we didn't have communal showers i me and my roommate shared a shower with the the room next to us which was just the ra in a, a total absolute guy move for the entire year no, it was the entire second semester. Uh, anytime a toilet paper roll ran out, we just put it next to the fucking toilet. And then by the end of the year, when it was move out day, this shit was like five feet tall. <laughs> like this tower of toilet paper rolls. Jason Siegel, a wild Jason Siegel appears, looking like someone who could conceivably be a senior in high school. This uh, would have been right around the time of or shortly before Freaks and Geeks. So he definitely fit the the age bracket for it he's one of the stoner kids that amanda asks you know where's preston at Um, he's uh he's eating a watermelon and it's the sexiest thing you'll see in this movie it's amazing he's scalping it yeah yeah he's (laughs) fucking scalping it then performing cunnilingus on it (laughs) it's hot probably completely improvised too this man would go on to write the best muppets movie (laughs) yeah it's one of those things that just acts stoned i don't you haven't dabbled much in weed, have you, Julio? Uh, no, only secondhand. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, there's definitely been some times like that where I've just murder fucked something that I was eating, like <laughs> just held it up to my face, or you know that thing of like just eating a slice of pizza, like eating all the toppings off first, and then don't do much of that anymore these days. I'm too old for it, but the, I I can relate heavily to Jason Siegel in this scene. <laughs> Mike Dexter chases Amanda inside to profess his love and, you know, we should get back together. And this is where she just completely, uh, my notes just say owned. Uh, <laughs> she just breaks him down and talks about what a loser he is and that, you know, she found this letter and there's someone that's going to treat her right. And, you know, she knows her own worth. And um, in retort, he says, okay, Amanda. Getting owned by JLo actually gives him uh some humanity which i was not expecting i mean i I saw this movie a long time ago so there's a lot of this i just didn't remember but i can tell you for sure that i did not expect mike dexter to get some sort of a sympathetic redemption arc for for a little bit of the movie which i think is good because you know he starts being painted off as a complete villain you're like out of all the characters in this movie this is the one that i am going to hate entirely 
But then there's like the last stretch of the movie where I kind of felt bad for him and uh, felt that, you know, he starts bonding with the nerd. And I'm like, this is this is kind of cute. The nerd. <laughs> uh, yeah, The they, kid from Hook. Siggy, uh, Richard Dreyfuss's son from What About Bob? A 311 song plays all mixed up, all messed up. I think it's all mixed up. 311 is such a niche of a niche that anytime they, but they were like gods where I went to fucking middle school and junior high. Them and ICP people acted like were, you know, the hottest shit out there. And 311, they've got some good songs, but it's one of those things I listened to them when I was younger. It's like, this is great. And I listened to it again when I was like 27 and I was like, what is this? <laughs> uh, so now anytime their music comes up, I mean, they, they still perform. They went on to have a longevity career, but man, when they, when they pop up, you, you got to think of like mid nineties and nothing else. So I, I, I popped hard when their music showed up. Amanda realizes she made a mistake when asked to sign Melissa Joan Hart's yearbook, sees who Preston really was. Uh, so <laughs> I think she throws the, the yearbook and takes off looking for Preston. Uh, we, we got the F word and now we get the N word in this movie used for comedic effect. But this one at least has the immediate repercussions of this white dude <laughs> thinking he can say it immediately getting chased down and hopefully beaten the shit out of. <laughs> so see, we were, we were watching America and, and American movies grow before our very eyes yeah even in 98 though that was a bridge too far you can't just walk around (laughs) saying saying the n-word and rightfully so unless you were in a quentin tarantino movie in which case gray area (laughs) yeah for real Uh, i i understand that because pulp fiction was four years before this and he got on screen and he's like my time to shine (laughs) so meanwhile uh the while this is happening seth green finally gets laid with the coolest character in the movie. Lauren Ambrose. They have sex, and it's presumably very short, as can be understood. He's completely dropped his whole act, at least momentarily, and they're just talking. And uh, But it, it immediately turns catty. They start arguing. and uh, I, I guess right after the Jerry O'Connell scene, this is the second most realistic slash relatable scene in the movie. The, the, the fact that as soon as they're done having sex... His insecurities come back, <laughs> and and he becomes an asshole. There's a there's an episode of Buffy where she has sex for the first time with this uh, dude that's a vampire, but he's a good vampire, and uh, but he was under a curse that said that uh, if he ever if he was ever happy, uh, truly happy then he would uh, lose his soul and or you know become bad and so of course he has sex with Sarah Michelle Keller and he achieves absolute happiness so he turns bad <laughs> and so you know the mythology of buffy goes so like you know the fandom everything you know the way that people read the that turn is like oh well you know it's an allegory for when uh, a girl has sex with her boyfriend for the first time and then the, the day after you know he becomes a dick and uh, that's all I could think of now <laughs> when I was watching Seth Green suddenly regress after having sex with Lord Ambrose. After Lord Ambrose does him the favor of having sex with him. Because she didn't have to. <laughs> she mm-hmm. she was not trying to get laid. She just thought that, you know, they were reconnecting. And it's like, why not? It's the last party of high school. But yeah, no, I, I actually, I thought that this was another scene that was uh, for all the the comedy and all the the silliness of the the setup in, in the end it was hitting some some emotional truths 
The party gets broken up, though. Damn it by Blink-182, one of the greatest songs of all time, begins playing. The cops show up, break up the party. This is why, like you said, Mike Dexter and William are bonding here, and this is the height of this. It's easily the hardest I laughed in the whole movie. The cops show up, and Mike Dexter tells William the cops, and they're at this piano, so William starts playing getaway music. (laughs) And he grabs him. He's like, no, we got to go. And they run out. And inadvertently, you know, run into the wrong area where William's friends jump them and try to frame them like they plan to with Mike and his friends. And, of course, they end up just setting up Mike and their friend William in this very compromised position. So after the cops break up the party, they scour the premises and they find Mike and William. And it's not a pretty sight, at least judging by their reactions. So we go to the morning after. William is in the drunk tank and he is woken up by the police officer that says your parents are here. And he begins freaking out, you know, because he got drunk. And he's told by the officer that Mike Dexter took the blame for all of it. It was his fault. I made him drink. So we think Mike has turned a new leaf Uh, elsewhere. Lauren Ambrose and Seth Green, he is, you know, he lost his virginity to this woman. So he is just like clung on to her like (laughs) baby don't go. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. White on rice on a paper plate in a snowstorm. And. She's just, you know, very apathetic about it. Uh, she sees Preston off, though. He's going to go to the train station. He goes to, is it Boston he's going to? Yes, yes. And by the way, we have not commented enough on uh, Ethan Embry's wardrobe in this movie. In sp- oh, it's phenomenal. Specifically in this scene when uh, she sees him off. It's amazing. That's hilarious he said that because I was watching it with my sister and I said, look at his fucking outfit. <laughs> he's got like... A black button-up shirt with the collar pulled out over like this red. It's not velour. It's like if it looks like a felt blazer. <laughs> How could Jennifer Love Hewitt not fall for this guy? Well, she does here, right? <laughs> That's what he should have worn to the party. Because in a horrifically predictable twist of fate, at a train station, <laughs> telling me this ain't John Hughes shit. Come on, uh, she shows up, and your dad told me you'd be here. Uh, and he, well, I can catch a, a later train and they kiss. Okay. It's not as easy as that, Alex. There's, there's some back and forth, some like, you know, he walks away, she walks away, he turns back, but she's not looking. Then she turns back and he's not looking. You buy that he's struggling with this decision of like, do I go after this hot girl that I've been obsessing over for my entire high school career? Or do I go pursue my dreams? And I think that what's cool about the movie is that, yes, he decides to catch a later train, but he does go to Boston. I think that a more generic movie would have just have him settle with her or have her go with him. But instead, this movie acknowledges that these are kids. You know, their their lives are still being shaped. They're not going to settle. I mean, they're too young to settle. Uh, I hate, and I think that that's a problem with like the, the John Hughes movies. They treat these teenagers like adults. Like the fucking Breakfast Club. I mean, you know, those friendships are not really gonna last. Uh, but the the movie makes it sound like makes it look like they're these these epic things that are gonna define the rest of their lives. And no, it's like what we were talking about earlier. Like you spend ten years with the same people, and it's special. But then once it's over, you branch out and you do something else. And that's what Ethan Embry does here. He keeps in touch with Jennifer Love Hewitt, but he goes to Boston, and she doesn't go with him. She she has stuff of her own to take care of, you know, without him. I actually don't think that the ending is as trite as it could be. It's just they connected, they had a good time at the train station, and then they they kind of continued moving forward. You're right. It's not as simple as I made it sound. Only You by Yazoo starts playing in the background while they're talking. Should have been Smash Mouth one last time. 
now they got me here because that's a fucking banger of a song. I mean, the whole soundtrack on this movie is ridiculously good. Uh, yeah, but she, she doesn't go. She stays and writes some letters every day. God, <laughs> I can't even be bothered to text my mom every day. When was the last time you received a letter, Alex? Like a paper letter? Like I, I've received like Christmas cards from friends that have like a note written on it, but an actual letter. Yeah, it's been years. One of the girls I dated in college, I remember, sent me postcards. And I was like, do you not have WhatsApp? Uh, <laughs> I wonder why that didn't work out. <laughs> I think that was like the thing she's intentionally said. I'm going to send you postcards just because it's such an antiquated way of communication. And so it was. And it was you just funny. rolled your eyes like boring. Nah, it, it was funny because it was always written like from the perspective of like, this is a week ago. I know I've talked to you probably every day since then. <laughs> Something like that, you know. <laughs> Uh, but letters lol so we know what happens to them seth green and lauren ambrose uh, have sex again <laughs> we're not sure of what their future holds outside of that uh william goes to thank mike dexter and like i said we thought he turned over a new leaf but that was not the case as he just tells him promptly to fuck off and calls him a nerd and makes fun of him and we learn that mike dexter lost his scholarship at school because he was drinking too much and then got fired from his job at a car wash after some incriminating Polaroids surfaced. <laughs> Meanwhile, William's a fucking billionaire who's dating a supermodel. Uh, he was the most popular guy in his class. He was in those pictures, too. <laughs> I guess, was he like a woke god when they surfaced that he embraced them or something? Probably. Uh, I think that more importantly than this, like the surface thing, is that I think it's a pretty neat trick that the filmmakers pull here. Because in, in theory, you're getting what you wanted. The nerd won. The, the bully lost. And yet, it is kind of a bittersweet ending because for a moment, we all believe that Mike Dexter had actually become a better person. And, and, and the truth is that for a moment, he was. He was a better person. It just didn't stick. But mm -hmm. even though he's an asshole the next morning, it doesn't change the fact that there was a point in his life where he took the blame for somebody that technically shouldn't have meant anything to him. So... The fact that they that that happened makes this ending just way more complex than it needed to be in a, in a good way. So I actually appreciate it. It's funny because yeah, you get the text and it's supposed to be funny and it is funny, but at the same time, there's this sadness uh, that comes with it, and it is actually very uh, uh, reminiscent of what it's like when when high school is over. You know, you're happy that it's over, but you're also a little sad. You're a little confused. Just, just like the Mag Dexter relationship with with this kid. No, <laughs> I was like, "Good, I'm out of here. I'm done. I'm fuck off. I hope I never see you people again." <laughs> you know, Melissa Joan Hart and uh, Bullcorn end up together. <laughs> oh yeah, I just remember that. Yeah, and the Shermanator like comes in at the last minute and steals like a fucking vending machine from the <laughs> <laughs> the diner or wherever they are. Man, what a good movie. A fun movie. <laughs> a simple movie. Fun credits, too. You get the, the credits with photos of everybody. As a former employee of a movie theater, though, as I'm sure you can relate to and attest to, I worked there for so long that now when I see a movie that has credits that people will stay to watch, it annoys me because <laughs> that was always the thing. You want to get in and clean the theater while the credits are still rolling. So when I see credits with gimmicks now, I'm just like, these fuckers probably stayed in the theater the whole time until it was over. <laughs> All right. Well, that was Contrarian's Corner. Alex, are you ready for real talk? Are you ready to 
to give your true opinions about uh, the original J-Lo and everybody else in this movie. Yeah, I'm more curious to hear what yours are. <laughs> it's, a, it's a foreigner that didn't grow up, that didn't go to high school here. Had a very different experience from uh, Can't Hardly Wait. Um, okay, now you remember the time on the field trip when we went to the meatpacking plant and you like threw up all in your book bag? <laughs> that, that wasn't me. Bullcorn, remember? Because you try to leave the bag on the bus so no one would see it. But then Vice Principal Biller, he like took it around all the classes, who it was, and I was like, wasn't that your bag? And you're like, no. And I was like, I'm thinking it is, dude, no. And we are back. But before we go into real talk, and even before we go into PP, Alex, it's time for a a minor announcement. A little bit of a, a format change going forward. What better time than our... 150th episode to to shake things up a little bit so loyal listeners uh we're gonna we're gonna do a little experiment uh over the next few episodes it might become a permanent thing i don't know we'll we'll see how it goes uh starting with episode 151 we are going to release contrarian's corner and real talk separately so still the same day still getting everything at once but the only difference is that you're going to see two Contrarians episodes on your feed. It would be 151 and then 151A, for example. 151 would be Contrarians Corner, and 151A will be Real Talk. And uh, that's really it. <laughs> as far as yeah. if you're a, a Contrarians listener, nothing really changes for you other than, well, you know, you'll download two episodes but the length of the show is technically the same. We were just splitting it in two. Uh, why yeah. are we doing this? Uh, the This short version, the short answer is that uh, because that way, instead of a potential new listener looking at our episodes and seeing that, you know, they are about two hours, now they'll look at our episodes. The absolute girth <laughs> of our episodes. Yes. Look. Here's the thing, just to go into a little bit more detail. Uh, I think, uh, I think I, I, I can probably speak for both of us. We make the show that we would like to listen to. And so I, I know that back in the day when we first started this, like length wasn't necessarily a concern. Uh, and in a way, it still isn't, you know, like uh, I, I listen to plenty of shows that go over two hours. Uh, and, I don't mind because I like my favorite podcast is like five hours on average. So I get it. Yeah. Uh, I think that what has changed is that when we first started doing the podcast, I I listened to podcasts, but I didn't listen to a whole lot of them. You know, it was a handful. So whenever they went long, it wasn't a big deal. And now if they go long, it's not a big deal because they already have me. You know, I like them. So it's like, I'll listen to, you know, just to to cite people that, that, you know, we mentioned. All the time. If uh, mm. if Dan and Caleb from Netflix and Swill want to talk for like three hours, they have me because I already know them, I already like their, their stuff, so I'll listen to them. But if you're a new show, the difference is that now I listen to a lot of stuff. So I don't have the time to like go, oh, this is a new show and their episodes are like three hours long. Let me check it out. It, that's not going to happen. You know, if like if I'm going to try something new, it's going to be either because somebody I like is guesting on that show or because somebody has recommended it or because it's like a short enough episode that I don't mind like giving them an hour of my time. And so now that I have that mindset, when I am checking out podcasts, then I was thinking, well, then maybe we should be a little more new listener friendly and maybe episode 151 being an hour long 
or around an hour uh, will make it more enticing for somebody that has never listened to us. Like I think the people that listen to us now, like they don't care, or at least I assume they don't care. Uh So it's basically that. We're just we're trying to be a little more new listener friendly. We want to spread the contrarian's love a little more. If it, <laughs> I'm gonna laugh really hard if actually we change this and our downloads go down. <laughs> be like, no, they actually liked us. We've lost listeners because we're not, uh, because we're not just one single episode every time. But uh, I don't think that'll happen. I think that worst case scenario, nothing changes. Best case scenario, we get more people listening, and that's always a lot more fun. This is. The first time that we mention this, and the second and last time we'll mention this will be the next episode, <laughs> 151, in case that somebody didn't listen to the Can't Hardly Wait episode. They're confused about why 151 is broken up in two. But then after that, I think that we can just not even mention it ever again. It'll just be the new normal. If you, dear listeners, have feedback about that, uh, let us know. Because like I said, it's it's an experiment. We can always go back to to the way it was. We're pretty malleable like that. I feel pretty confident in saying our regular listeners are not going to be affected by this. Or they won't. I mean, it'd be awesome if we got like hate mail, like if fucking Adam from Film Busters was like, fuck you. (laughs) You, I'm not listening to your show anymore. You just threw my shit off. Uh, Yeah. But uh, if nothing else, it'll make it easier for you all to browse in your uh, whatever pod service you use. Yeah. I don't think, I don't see the downside if you're a listener. But if there is a downside that I just that we're not considering, let us know, and uh, we'll we'll reconsider everything. Uh, so with that special announcement out of the way, now we can go into PP, our patron pitch. This is where we let our patrons know uh, what they can expect on our exclusive patron feed, as well as letting non-patrons know what they're missing out on. Uh, we're doing two new QVRs this time, uh, selected by. Uh, friend and patron Jordan Mance I'm doing a quick video review of the animated movie Wolfwalkers Alex is doing a quick video review of the Netflix movie The Guilty starring Jake Gyllenhaal we're also uh, adding another stop to our Rock Cena journey uh, this time uh, we're doing a, an episode about WWE films uh, Alex what exactly is that? <laughs> WWE Studios, much like the WBF and the XFL, one of Vince McMahon's attempts to get away from doing professional wrestling, (laughs) just trying to use his money anywhere he can, and his wrestlers too. He's like, well, they're contracted for me, so I'm going to use them the way I think they should be used, because we make movies. Uh, In addition to that, this month you will also be getting, (laughs) which I'm very much looking forward to, commentary tracks. Uh, alternate commentary, I guess you could call it, for The Rock versus Triple H at Backlash 2000 and John Cena versus Umaga at the 2007 Royal Rumble, as Julio and I will be recording those. Julio, I'm really looking forward to you, like calling a drop toe hold or something. <laughs> I, uh, you know, our last commentary track was a while ago. It was Prometheus. Uh, this is just the, the next logical step. <laughs> yes. Um, We'll also have a bonus episode just for patrons on the movie Undead, picked by patron Chaz Fisher, uh, someone else who has a podcast that goes on for like three hours sometimes, and I love it. And then, you know, the standard stuff, cutting room floor uh, segments, all the things that don't make it into the official episodes, our pre-recording notes, and of course, Contrarians After Hours. The spin-off show where we talk about other things that we've watched, that we've 
play that we'll listen to. Alex, what are you bringing to Contreras After Hours this time? The only Oscar-nominated movie I think I saw, which is Spencer. I watched this recently, and I very much liked it, and I would like to talk about it uh, with Kristen Stewart and the primed to potentially win a Best Actress Academy Award, which is like straight out of that Simpsons bit about the guy that wakes up in a coma from 1979 and they tell him Cher won an Oscar and he's and he just like dies. He flatlines because he can't take it anymore. <laughs> trying to think when the first Twilight came out, like 2011, tell someone that she's going to be nominated for an Oscar in 10 years. It's a crazy world. Uh, COVID changed a lot of smells. Uh, also, you've seen two Oscar-nominated movies because you watched Licorice Pizza with me and we also did a... Oh, yes. <laughs> and after yes, hours yes, yes, about yes, yes. that. So... Yeah. Kind of a low-key Oscars coverage here going on in uh, our patron. Um, <laughs> that's Yeah, that's more than I've seen the past few years. So, I'm man. <laughs> Celebrate. Batting 500 here. Uh, on my end, Alex, I am going to tell you about the latest Guillermo del Toro movie, uh, which is available on HBO Max already. It's called Nightmare Alley, starring uh, Bradley Cooper, a bunch of other well-known actors. Uh, it's a Guillermo del Toro movie, which means that when it comes to me, it can be major success or it can be something that doesn't work at all. I'll, I'll tell you about it. Uh, tiny spoiler, it, it mostly worked for me. And then I'll also tell you about a documentary that I watched. It's been a while since I've told you about a documentary that I've watched. Uh, this one is called In and of Itself. And it's, uh, I think it still qualifies as a documentary. It's, it's, uh, but it's basically somebody filmed, uh, I guess you could call it a magic show. It's, it's a magic show slash self improvement seminar. <laughs> It's it's okay. Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting, and uh, that one's on Hulu. I'll I'll tell you about it. That a lot of people have been talking about it, which is what led me to watch it, and I don't regret it. And I think that you might actually enjoy it as well. So I'll be telling you about that in and of itself. Nightmare Alley, Spencer, all the other stuff that we listed. patreoncom slash Prime. Look at our tiers and see if you would like to join the Contrarian supplements. One dollar, three dollar, five dollar, ten dollars. Check it out. Go to the page, see what it is you might like. Just throw a buck our way, and then for a month you have access to the things Julio mentioned there. You'll see if you like it. We're confident you will, so you'll want to give us more money because you'll want us to cover, I don't know, that new Uncharted movie that's coming out or some bullshit. And <laughs> we'll have no choice because you're a patron and you demand it. If you check it out and there's something there that you don't like or something you'd like to see, just let us know. We are the contrarians at gmail.com. And to all of our current patrons... We got mad love for y'all. We appreciate you continuing to support us in this journey we move along. So with that being said, Julio, it's time to go back to high school. Can't hardly wait to go back to high school. Hey, <laughs> we didn't even plan that, and that worked. <laughs> uh, I, I, I need to go back to high school. I'm all right. I'm okay. Yeah, no, thank you. As Julio and I have talked about in a previous episode, which we believe deduced was Heather's, High school was not that important to either of us. It was important in the sense of it got, you know, learned some shit and got us from point A to point B. Uh, but we are certainly not the type of people that reminisce often, if at all, about the days of high school. Yeah, I, I probably mentioned it in Heather's episode, but still just kind of like to solidify it and kind of make it clear. Like, I, I don't live thinking back of uh, the golden days of high school. It's like, oh, those were the days. But at the same time, some of my closest friends to this day are are 
friends that I made in high school, which is, I know that's not the norm. Yeah. I, I think I'm lucky enough that I actually connected with some people and we've been able to keep in touch throughout the years, even though we live in two different countries. You know, we lived in two different countries for yeah. the last 20 years. That doesn't mean that I, like, you know, I have people, I have friends that get really excited whenever it's time for whatever, the next high school reunion. And that's not me, uh, you know. I've, uh, yeah. And it's not just because, well, I live in another country, so it's more of a hassle to, you know, attend. But also because I, for the most part, nothing against my high school class, you know, I, I had some good times with them. And some people, like I said, I, I had some really good times with them. But it's like, if I didn't have much to talk about with you back then, it hasn't really changed now. I mean, you know, it's like, I, it's not like we've grown closer <laughs> over, you know, the decades since we graduated it to me mm. it would be mostly like going back to hang out with strangers and uh you know the people that i love from high school like i hang out with them without having to have a high school reunion so it's really not i'm sorry i'm one of those guys <laughs> so i'm not yeah. i'm not the guy that gets really excited about the high school reunions see i have a lot of the emotions that some people do about high school about college i have a lot of like very heavy nostalgia and good old days about that but yeah high school i i don't even i don't know if my high school's ever done a reunion uh i know that i've never gone to one and it's just it is what it is i didn't have a bad time like like i said my graduating class was small and i went to it was called an alternative learning center and i really enjoyed my last three years my first year i went to like a big high school and i fucking hated it um maybe hard for you to believe i wasn't very cool julio <laughs> but uh so my last That's three years you didn't fine, have a podcast yet, yet. Oh, exactly. That's, that's really what was missing. The technology. If they only knew. Yeah. If they only knew. Technology needed to catch up to your needs. But that doesn't mean we can't enjoy something like Can't Hardly Wait. Because we don't demonize people that view it that way. And also, it's a fucking movie. So, of course, uh, in the it was PG-13 also. The audience it was aimed at was fucking high school students. So it gives them hope, builds them up. Go on, you little assholes. You can do something after this or tell that girl you love her. <laughs> do something like that. It's surprising it's only 40%, but as we've come across with a lot of these nostalgia flicks, uh, they, they don't hold up in the eyes of the critics in a lot of cases. Now, like Empire Records, of course, is one of my favorites and a far more flawed film <laughs> than Can't Hardly Wait, if I remember correctly. We did that for episode five. And it was, I think, at 25% when we did it. And it is at 29% now. <laughs> People listened to the episode and decided. One review came in. It was like. Was it Kip Mooney? What was his name? Johnny Wetworth. Johnny Whitworth. That was his name. Someone needed to come in and defend. Yeah, there's been a lot of reviews over the past few years. Because uh, we would have done that in like 2016 or so. Mm -hmm. So there you go. Contrarian's making a difference. My point being here. Uh, these nostalgia movies and people, uh, generational type movies that the youth gets really excited about often don't hold up too much. Being that this is 40% of Rotten Tomatoes, Julio, it is a gray area. It almost split critics down the middle, at least the, the ones that are recognized by Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, what quotes were you able to wrangle up for us for the second half here? Okay, I have another set of uh, mixed quotes from uh, the Tomato Meter, starting with Anne Hornday from Baltimore Sun. It's a rotten quote, and she says, Youth may be wasted on the young, but it's a drop in the bucket compared to the time wasted pandering to them. <laughs> I love it. Yes. Yes. 
Pander, pandering to the young people has never worked for anybody. <laughs> Are we making society better by pandering to the youth? What do you think, Alex? <laughs> for one movie released in the summer when they have nothing else to do, I think we're going to be all right. Yeah. Come on, Anne. Lighten up. Stephen Thompson from the AV Club. It's a fresh quote. And he says, Former UFC welterweight title challenger, Stephen Thompson? Probably. Didn't we do somebody who was also, a, I think, a pro wrestler that then was writing for Variety? <laughs> yeah, I can't remember who, but yeah. Is it, is it Steven with a V or a PH? PH. Yeah, that's Wonder Boy. Hey, and, could be, yeah. could be. He says, the film deserves credit both for its breezy pacing and its uncommon tendency to make its characters smarter and geekier than they might have been. Uh, I don't Was know that a I fresh... Yeah, that's a fresh one. But I don't think that they... Oh, well, no, that's not true. Okay, so if he's referring to... No one's to, like a uh, caricature. Well, I don't know, man. I, I think Denise is probably, uh, you know, Claire Fisher. Like, she's she's great. She's she's pretty, like, well-rounded. But most of the kids in this movie, they're, they're kind of one note. I, that's not a bad thing. It's a comedy. But I don't know that they're smarter and geekier than they might have been. I think that they're just as smart and as geeky as the movie needed them to be. I I buy everyone in this movie in the role they're given. Uh, obviously, they're all ten years older than the role uh, is cast, <laughs> but I believe that they were that kind of person without resorting to shtick or anything. Especially Seth Green, whose character could easily get away from somebody. Um, yeah, yeah. He does a really good job of keeping it all uh, cohesive. So you know you're the real deal. That's right. That's that's how you that's how you get to voice the new Howard the Duck. In the MCU. <laughs> sure. Mark Caro from the Chicago Tribune. This one's a rotten one. And he says, Kaplan and Elfin provide a real public service by showing how underage binge drinking can boost bookish students' social lives. I don't think he's being, uh, I think he's being a little sarcastic there, but. Uh, In 98, we're still acting like high school students don't get a hold of alcohol and party. <laughs> yeah. Mark, Grow do you know where up. your kids are? <laughs> yeah. And finally, Rachel Wagner from Rachel's Reviews. I think I follow Rachel Wagner on Twitter. I mean, like, I don't think we interact, but that, that name sounds familiar. Um, from Rachel's Reviews on YouTube. Uh, it's a fresh tomato, and she says, Lauren Ambrose is the standout in this teen comedy. And Rachel, I agree, 100%. Everybody else is fine, but Lauren Ambrose, maybe it's just that I was I was feeling pretty nostalgic about Six Feet Under, but I, I, I thought that she was... Far and away, the best part of the movie. Yeah, she's good. I think the movie who's is a your, whole. Who's your MVP? Uh, I guess, yeah, it would probably be her because to me, it's like an ensemble performance here. Uh, definitely not Jennifer Love Hewitt. Nope. As... <laughs> <laughs> I meant what I said when we started this podcast earlier tonight. I I know that she's done some things and uh, that have been celebrated and has turned into a you know, polished actress. Here, she was just hot. It was like be hot, stay hot. That's that's all we need from you. And then at the end, you know, adjust the level of uh, of which your eyes are open a little bit every time the guy across <laughs> from you is talking. You'll be all right. It's true. That's, that's the performance. But is it her fault, or is it no. just, or no. is it what the movie was asking of her? You know, I I I'm gonna give Jennifer Love Hewitt the benefit of the doubt because I remember liking her in uh, Party of Five. I guess yeah, she was Scott this Wolf's movie, girlfriend. She exists to be hot. 
the whole premise of her, like the whole idea of her character is like this mythical being that the our main character is romantically interested in. So of course, when we see her, she should be the most beautiful thing in the film. So, uh, but right, again, but, but she could be that and also be funny or interesting, and she's neither. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not arguing with you. I'm. It's just that's what. As Grandpa Simpson says, as was the style at the time. Um, <laughs> because, you know, we have examples of, like fucking Emma Stone and Superbad. My God, she's hilarious and she's hot as mm-hmm. shit. Yep. It's yep. just like, so yeah, I, I know I pick up what you're putting down, uh, but none of this falls on her. Uh, Ethan Embry, not telling tales at recess. The contrarians love him. So uh, don't want to beat on that drum too hard. And uh, the nerd. S- Siggy from what about Bob? I already forgot his name. Jack Manning. Uh, <laughs> Charlie Corsmo. I feel like if DJ Qualls didn't exist, I'd probably be more like <laughs> this performance is over the top or something. It's it, it was the prototype for what became the DJ Qualls run of 2000, 2001 <laughs> with Road Trip and the new guy. <laughs> It's a bummer we never got DJ Qualls hosting Saturday Night Live out of that run. He's still around, and Saturday Night Live still exists, so it could happen. He just needs a comeback vehicle. I need to cast him in the new uh, Fantastic Four movie. God, as what? Dr. Fantastic? Yeah, Reed Richards. <laughs> he can be a nerd. <laughs> it's another one. Like, yeah, Road Trip made fucking $120 million. I'm pretty sure he... If even if you got five of that, you give you and me could live off five million dollars and die and still have probably a million left over. So, and he was in hustle and flow. I always forget about that. <laughs> We're mean to DJ Qualls. What do you know about Peter uh, Fasanelli, Julio? I I'm not sure if I've really ever seen anything else that he's been in. Uh, Twilight. He's the uh, he's the the vampire dad in Twilight. Okay. I think that, you know, I know that he's in other movies, but that's when I saw his name on the credits, I instantly recognized it from that. And then, uh, and then I saw him like, man, he's really young in this movie. But of course, that would make sense because this movie was way before Twilight happened. He's in all of them? Well, I don't know. I've only seen the first one, but I think his character is one of the mainstays. He's, uh, Robert Pattinson's dad. <laughs> okay. Wow. <laughs> Life comes at you fast. <laughs> He walked up to him sitting on the swing in the backyard with a six-pack and said, Son, <laughs> can't get girls your freshman year. Charlie Corsmo, Julio, the William Lichtner character, the nerd character. This is something that has always existed in the high school, college genre. You know, DJ Qualls, as we jested about earlier, uh, McLovin uh, mm-hmm. are just obviously some of the more recent ones that come to mind. It works for some people. It doesn't for others. As it pertains to the performance here of William by Charlie Corsmo, you find this funny, the nerd character? Is this is this the type of stuff that makes you laugh, or does it just kind of make you roll your eyes? Uh, it grew on me. I mean, it, it depends on the on the person that's doing it. I, I think that uh, Christopher Mintz, Platz Mintz, Mintz Platz, McLovin. McLovin? Yeah. Yeah. McLovin, he, he, he nails it from frame one this kid it took me a moment to warm up to him and it's just you know obviously it's the the mixture of the performance and the the screenplay but uh yeah i want to say that when when he was being the nerd 
when, when he was in full nerd mode, I didn't really care much. And then once he started loosening it up, that I found funny. Yes, Drew Barrymore's he's... whole thing and never been kissed. Yeah, except that Drew Barrymore has more charisma in her <laughs> pinky than you know half the cast in this movie. So that's not a fair comparison. When we get to the point where he's drunk and uh, he's talking about the stars with some dude, God's salt. That was, I mean, that made me laugh really hard. So he had his moments, and I, I was not kidding. Guitar's Corner, the Paradise City sing along was was a highlight. Which, as I said, it's not usually, that's not what I go for. That, that type of uh, sequence in a comedy usually makes me cringe. But here, it just made me laugh because he committed so hard to, to doing it. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's fine. He's, he made me laugh. And honestly, like, here's my, maybe, I guess now, my controversial take. I don't think Ethan Embry is that great here because he's just neutered. And- yeah, he doesn't get many moments to achieve. But I don't know that anybody. I mean, he does kind of like like with Jennifer Love Hewitt. Like he does what he can, but the the, the screenplay, the movie doesn't want. They're him the to two do main characters. Yeah, 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 they're the two main characters, but they're given the least to do. Uh, like I said, Jennifer Love Hewitt's look hot, and Ethan Embry's like, all right, be precocious, excited, devastated, happy, and <laughs> and I know it's like hard to tell someone to do those all those range of emotions, but. It's basically it results in him not really having too much dialogue or any that's you know coherent. It's a lot of him stammering and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And the best scene he has. This is actually kind of a question I wrote down for you. The best scene he has is when he's doing that shit of like you think he's breaking the fourth wall and it just turns out he's talking to the foreign exchange student. Um, <laughs> his Oscar that's, clip. Yeah, absolutely his Oscar clip. That's potentially <laughs> the best original screenplay clip too. Uh, <laughs> So that's when he has the most time to shine of him like recounting his feelings for this girl. I I don't know if it's ever come up before. Julio, do you like that trope in comedies? Because I watched that and it seemed like something that could make you groan or roll your eyes. The thing of where you think the character is breaking the fourth wall and then it pans back and he you realize he's talking to like a character who's dead panning back at him. Is mm-hmm. that a trope that you find entertaining or is that one of the Julios just kind of I could do without? Uh, it's not to the point where I could do without it, but it's, I don't think that it ever surprises me. Like, I mean, I, I didn't remember it in this movie, but as soon as I saw what was happening, I'm like, oh, he's talking to someone. I just couldn't tell you who until it turned out that it was the the exchange student. I was like, oh, it could be just somebody we haven't seen before, or maybe he's talking to the dog or whatever, you know? It was fine here. I mean, because he's a good actor, so he can hold that monologue for a while. And then the reveal is like, ah, that's all right. I think his best moment in the movie is uh, pretty brief, but it's when he, <laughs> after uh, after Bullcorn ruins his <laughs> his approach <laughs> to Jennifer Love Hewitt, and he goes like, hey, remember when I was trying to talk to a really hot girl and you kept interrupting me with these really stupid memories from our childhood? And the guy's like, no, I don't remember that. He's like, really? Because it just happened. <laughs> that was good. I was like, give me more of that. I want angry uh, Ethan Embry instead of puppy dog Ethan Embry that's just following Jennifer Love Hewitt around the party. <laughs> that seems so good. No, that wasn't me. Bullcorn. <laughs> he keeps going. Like He just keeps telling more and more embarrassing parts of the story. It's so great. So, Julio, it sounds like we're in agreement as far as the Ethan Embry, Jennifer Love Hewitt dynamic. Mike Dexter, you said he turned into the Twilight Dad. What did you think about his performance here? Uh, Peter Fascinelli as the 
the jock football, basically the person we were talking about at the beginning of this, someone who would get really excited about the high school reunion type thing. Yes. <laughs> uh, he's funny. He's funny. He's also, man, it's unfortunate now that you're editing this episode on your own. Uh, and, uh, feel free, be very liberal with your cutting when, as, as I was struggling to make any sort of contrarian point about the, the homophobia in this movie because it was, <laughs> it was an uphill battle and his character is obviously the one that's you know surrounded by most of it and that is that is unfortunate because he i think he's really funny he's a he's very hateable but not in an overwhelming way with it just stops making the movie enjoyable you know he's yeah. an asshole but i think that the movie is very clever in the way that he's not the asshole that's always on top instead most of the movie he is uh things are not going his way because he goes he walks into the party expecting all his friends to break up with their girlfriends so they can you know the boys can spend summer together and instead his plan backfires <laughs> and they none of them break up with their girlfriends and then he's just by himself at the party and so I actually have a note I wrote just like every time that Mike Dexter suffers my my heart fills with joy it, it that happens throughout the movie uh, so yeah, no, he's he's good. I love his moments of like where he realizes his plans backfiring and it's not going to work. Where he has these moments of insecurity. Obviously, it culminates with him befriending William at the end. Yep. But as he's trying to fight it throughout, it, it's entertaining as a viewer. Yeah, uh, no, he's he's funny, and uh, I really liked you know that he takes the fall uh, when they yes when the cops get him. And I, I remember when I watched shame. this movie as a kid, and I really liked that. Like, yeah, and, and I think it's a shame that they. I, mean, I understand right that why he reverts. Uh, but I think it's a bummer. <laughs> Honestly, like I was 11 when this movie came out. I probably didn't see it till I was 13 or 14, but that was like seeing it that young really like helped me learn the lesson about that, about some people just can't help but be pieces of shit. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, and that doesn't mean they don't know right from wrong. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not trying to say this movie, you know, said it had some profound message or was, but I remember just seeing it at the right point in my life of, helping kind of nail home that message yeah no i i, I get it. it it's 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 hard because it's a point that it's almost too uh too mature for the type of movie that that can hardly wait wants to be you know yeah. so they feel the need to automatically like right away diffuse the <laughs> the complexity of it by giving you those title cards that yes. say oh you know the nerd went on to be really successful and and mike dexter went on to ruin his life his own life and I'm like, ah, that's funny, but you know, we were getting somewhere with this story. <laughs> it's like, here's me just wanting can hardly wait to be profound at the end. Yeah, uh, it's uh, that's oh man, can you imagine just if the scenes just played out and none of those title cards hit? Yep. Uh, <laughs> that of course, it's just like the end of Smithereens. Like the, it just ends with a, a freeze, <laughs> freeze frame. frame. <laughs> But it's the Animal House principle. You got to get the last punchline in on you know with these characters. This went on to do this. And that's uh, that awesome episode of Community where they it's like the college movie. It's presented like and Troy and Abed throughout it have basically they act out the plot of like a college movie. And then at the end of the food fight, and <laughs> Troy and Abed will return and whatever. It's like the freeze frame. With you and I, Julio, and the things that have become evident for what we want in movies, that the Animal House ending is not it. We don't want these title cards that say <laughs> that tell us what happened. We want fucking am 
ambiguity, baby. That's what we need. <laughs> and, you know, the idea of questioning where these characters go and whatnot. Dude, but like, look, and, and this is, I mean, I feel bad just like secondhand directing the end of uh, these a 24 year old movie. Uh, yeah, well, but also, you know, like the filmmakers, obviously, they, they just went with like, listen, we want it to be funny. But can you imagine if instead it's just that that final scene happens and then the nerd leaves the cafeteria, the diner, and then you just all you need is just like one shot of Mike Dexter that shows that he feels bad about what just happened. Yes. You know, you don't have to you don't need extra dialogue. You don't need to really dwell on it. Just like give us a shot that shows like, oh, what you were saying. He knows the difference between right and wrong. He just can't help himself. And uh and that's it. And then you cut to the train station and, you know, you still have all that bullshit with uh, Ethan Embry and Jennifer Love Hewitt. <laughs> like, that would make it a much better movie. You know, if nothing else, this movie, I just found myself smiling so much throughout it because I, I guess you could call it bias of my age range or, you know, when I grew up or something. But 1995 to, like, 98 uh, – is such a the music of the 90s is split in two unlike a way i don't believe any other decade has ever seen um i watched uh airheads today as well and that kind of helped remind me of the you had the hard rock the grunge uh and the you know the metal of the early 90s that had like this kind of sense of uh rebellion to it you know, your your pop acts were things like Atlantis Morissette, but still like Dave Matthews and all these things that there were there was accessibility, even like Rage Against the Machine, which had their message came along. But they were still the mainstream at that point in time was way more into that rebellious nature. And then from like 95 to 98 ish was this time period of like. I don't want to say fun, but that's kind of what comes to mind of this music that was so innocent in nature. And then fucking 99 hits and it becomes like boy band, Britney Spears, and then <laughs> Limp Bizkit, Kid Rock, fucking corn, all this aggro aggressive shit. And these forces start like conflicting with each other. And then early 2000s, we start dabbling in melodrama and all that shit. And so that 95 to 98 time period is so unique and this movie's soundtrack like perfectly encapsulates a lot of that it goes out of that too i mean the movie's named after a song by the replacements from the 80s dire straits is in here as well it's not just like barry manilow it's not just music of the time right. but the soundtrack is so constructed with shit from that era that is so familiar to me and so, I guess, beloved. I could have used just like maybe some Jamiroquai and Spice Girls in here and we would have been set. <laughs> the director's cut. Uh, but see, go. even like I, I recognize maybe a quarter of the bands in this soundtrack, but it felt 90s anyway. And so there's just that vibe that I, I and I enjoy it. So I think that's why I recognize it uh, so easily. That was something that, you know, from the very beginning, like it starts the music and it just reminded me of, you know, what else have we done? Like Looser and uh, Reality Bites. You know, it's just like mm. there is those soundtracks that are just very, very much of the 90s. Like, I don't know that I am as, as crazy about Smash Mouth as uh, the filmmakers. 
But uh, I thought you were going to say it's about you, like referring to me. I was going to be like, all right, f- fucking calm down. <laughs> no. <laughs> but I but I appreciate, you know, how they, they set the tone. They they definitely, gra- like I said in the Contreras <laughs> Corner, like, it's one of those things that grounds you on that decade. So, that no, I, I appreciated that. And I don't know. Maybe this is this is something where where we differ, just given our high school experiences. But the the overall plot of uh, we're graduating, let's throw a big party. That I can, uh, not that I've ever been to a party like that, but I I remember that feeling of you know we were done, we were seniors and we were done, and then we just wanted to to have a good time. But of course, we're also underage, and. You know, they were like, it was the last time to be social with these people that you were probably, hopefully, not going to see again. <laughs> so, there was, when this movie was starting, like, I was really vibing with that, you know, because you have that, that kind of excerpts of conversations throughout the school where they're talking about the party, but they're also talking about Mike Dexter and they're talking about Amanda and all that stuff. And I was like, this feels, uh, familiar in a way not not verbatim but i'm like i remember this vibe of just you know that being the most important thing that was happening at that time in your life that you were graduating and there's going to be a big social event and that there are opportunities there <laughs> i don't think i ever thought i was getting late because like i said i was even much younger than than you know most of my classmates but I remember just, you know, it was that thing where you could feel there was a turning point and you needed to kind of make the most of it. So I I like that. I, I guess what I'm building up to what saying is that I like this movie a lot more for a while. Like I would say maybe the first 45 minutes or so, maybe in an hour. And then it slowly, once it started winding down and uh, kind of like saying the things that it wanted to say, I was laughing less and I was just kind of, Connecting with what was going on a lot less, you know, the stuff with uh, Jerry Connell, the stuff with uh, calling her Claire Fisher, but uh, what's her real name? Um, Denise. Lauren Ambrose. Lauren Ambrose. Stuff with Jerry Connell, stuff with uh, Lauren Ambrose. That stuff that, yeah, it felt adult, but uh, I guess the movie at one at some point, it just kind of uh, goes from being something that was kind of relatable and funny to being something that was not as relatable because it's just... You know, it becomes a fairy tale for pretty much everybody involved. And that's fine. I mean, that's the movie that they decided to make. But I liked it a little more when it was just a little more open. And it was just, uh, I guess, the concept of, oh, let's throw a big party at the end of our senior year. And I guess make the most of it. You know, that that idea is, <laughs> I like it a lot more in, in concept before the execution kind of like made it, limited its possibilities. Yeah, I can appreciate that. I, I definitely... I know I I did attend and have parties like this, but that again wasn't until college, uh, and I feel some of those things carried on. There was, I don't know, my college experience is pretty cliched. Of felt free of responsibilities and like the world is my oyster type thing. I mean, I graduated, so I at least did the work, but there was a lot of there were nights like this, you know, <laughs> out until five in the morning, just getting into God knows what. Uh, that I could appreciate and relate to. I never saw Jason Siegel eating a piece of watermelon at one of the parties, though. <laughs> I see. I remember my one of my closest friends. We're, we're friends until now, but uh, he uh, he was a big drinker back uh-huh. <laughs> back then <laughs> when we we're high school students. That was, you know, that was you know you, you 
when you're growing up, you know, when you're a teenager, there's always like, a, I imagine, there's always uh, at least one friend that is like, wow, you, uh, this is fun that you drink so much and, you know, you don't, you're not an annoying drunk. But at yeah. the same time, when you're an adult and you look back on it, I was like, man, that's fucked up that he was drinking so much. Uh, yeah. But anyway, he was, uh, <laughs> we were done, or we were like in our last day of high school or whatever, and uh, he, he just became, he was determined to have a drink with like every single person that he had never drunk with in our class. <laughs> and that was just a thing. That was his quest, you know? And, and that was, that's the kind of shit that you would see in a movie like Can't Hardly Wait, you know? And it's just, oh, yeah. it fits seamlessly. So that the spirit of that is kind of like what I responded really well uh, in, in the movie. Because uh, I could just see my friend going like, you know, he got really excited. I remember him running to me at some point and be like, and telling me, I just did a shot with this guy. Just, you know, stupid teenager shit. And I mean, not to go too like deep into it, but I, like, I had, uh, I guess an equivalent of the Jeffrey Love Hewitt scenario, but it was not, you know, I was not like as obsessed and I would like to think as pathetic as Ethan Embry. (laughs) I would think we all do. Right. But the, the, like the specific like high school person and you're thinking, okay, well, it's now or never, right? Because after this, we're kind of going our separate ways. And, uh, so that kind of makes it relatable, but the difference is that, I guess, in my experience, like life is not uh, a movie, uh, right? That, but for some people, it must be. You know, I think that there might be some people that watch Can't Hardly Wait and they're like, "Oh, well, that, this is exactly how it went for me. <laughs> I married my high school sweetheart." I mean, that's still a thing that happens today. So I imagine that those people experience this movie a little more, you know, a little differently. To yeah, them, I, I, you know, I have such a fucking love for this. Like, this is what I live for, these type of, like, you know, hopeless romantic endings. Mine in college was this girl. <laughs> uh, there was a picture of her and I, and I think it's when we were both moving away, and I gave it to her, and on the back of it, I put uh, a passage of lyrics from Pictures of You by The Cure. <laughs> Classy. Yeah, and it's one of those things still, you know, to this day, every once in a while, She'll reach out to me just to kind of catch up, and it's just like I feel like fucking we're both eating a cherry pop tart again or something. You know? <laughs> so, so watching a movie like this is yeah, I fucking love it. Uh, it works out even better in movies when the actors are good and can pull it off more convincingly. <laughs> I think you're onto something. I think they kind of muzzled Ethan Embry here because we've, without a shadow of a doubt, seen just on this podcast what he's capable of when you just fucking you know, free base him. Uh, and here it was just kind of like, be cute. and Yeah, they're trying to make him the, you know, the regular Joe. And I don't think that that's the best way to use Ethan Embry. Yeah. That's, that's also not who you want to make your main character in these. Yeah. It, it's these types of movies. I guess you could say American Pie and Road Trip that worked because the leads are like, you know, the kind of more dorky, Straight guys, I guess you would say, but yeah, but but Jason Biggs fucks a pie, you know. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. He's the straight guy, but he still fucks a pie. And Brecken Meyer, and hey, what was it? Two years later, so I guess the progression makes sense because he's in college and road trips, so he graduates <laughs> and goes on to it. Yeah, he, what he does is completely not normal. So I guess I just defeated my own point. <laughs> yeah, you have to give them something, and they, they don't really give Ethan Embry uh, anything other than oh, he's obsessed with her. He wrote a letter. That's it. And uh, he has a good wardrobe. 
and he has killer wardrobe. <laughs> yeah, one of the things I, I mentioned when discussing the soundtrack, Dire Straits, Romeo and Juliet is in this. And Julio, you may not remember, but that song is also featured in Empire Records. It's a scene of transition, mm-hmm. and it's showing just everyone working around the record store while that song plays, and it plays in this while you know he had just gotten his heart broken. So it's the the Embryverse at this point. <laughs> the Embry soundtrack. Lauren Ambrose and John Cena need to interact at some point now in something to complete God. <laughs> The Embry universe. You sure John Cena was not in uh, Where the Wall Things Are? He was a little kid. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Julio. So winding down here, we joked in the first half about Jennifer Love Hewitt's MTV Movie Award. I did look it up, and I did find that she was nominated for Best Female Performance alongside Jennifer Lopez for Out of Sight, Gwyneth Paltrow for fucking Shakespeare in Love and Liv Tyler for Armageddon and then the eventual winner Miss Cameron Diaz for There's Something About Mary. So it was not to be. All those are better performances. (laughs) Categorically. Easily. We've established it's a fun movie. It was uh, in 2012 Entertainment Weekly ranked Can't Hardly Wait number 44 on its list of 50 best high school movies of all time. Uh, it's, It's good. It's a lot of fun. It's funny. It's very quotable. Soundtrack is amazing. Ain't in the same class as Superbad. Ain't in the same class as Grease. Ain't in the same class as Mean Girls, etc., etc. Breakfast Club, Ferris Bueller. But it's a good time. Uh, would you agree with that, Julio? Uh, maybe not Grease. Yes, I would just give the disclaimer, the warning. I'm like, brace yourself for the homophobia because I, I was not ready. <laughs> And I don't want to like. I don't want to sound like overly sensitive about it, but it was really the. It's what you said in the first portion. There's a lot of merit to that. It's it's not that it's not that we're oversensitized per se right now. It's just that it's like just not acceptable. And so hearing it used in a way for like a punchline is just kind of it's jarring to say the least. And it may not ruin the experience for us. There's definitely people out there at would. So that's, that's a good call that you would tell someone, Hey, just heads up. There's rampant homophobia in this. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, uh, it's not as bad as like Eurotrip, you know, like Eurotrip was just like drenched in it. (laughs) Yes. But this one, maybe because it's not drenched in it, it kind of, it hit me harder whenever it happened because, you know, we'd gone it's a, a PG-13 movie. Like, that's the other part of, like, Jesus. They <laughs> yeah. were just throwing all this shit around willy-nilly. Yeah, yeah. But still, really funny. I, I, I laughed a lot. Like I said, mostly the first hour or so. Uh, Lauren Ambrose is a treasure. I, I really, really liked her here. And uh, Seth Green is also really funny. Peter Fascinelli. Yeah. There's, there's a lot to like. Even if your high school uh, experience was not, you know, exactly this. So where does it land for you? You know, that's a good question. I hadn't really even thought about it. <laughs> Usually, by the time that I'm done watching a movie, I'm like, all right, I'm I'm good. I I, I have the the rating. But this one, I finished, and then I didn't think about it because we we're not recording right away. And now I'm kind of uh, three and a half. I'm gonna give it three and a half. I laughed a lot, and it would be. My rating wouldn't reflect how much I laughed if I gave it less. So three and a half for me. How about you? I think that's what I rated on Letterboxd. Yeah, that would be a B minus for me. Um, so 
it's a good time. I will watch this movie several more times before I leave this earth. <laughs> and I will laugh every time and enjoy the soundtrack just as much. It, it has a very, very high rewatchability, and it's a fine movie. You know, the only reason we found these things to discuss is because we talk about movies and people want to hear what we think about it. So when we actually dive in, this is what comes from it. But it's a, it's a fun movie and very funny. And Jennifer Love Hewitt is very hot and does a very good job at what is asked of her. Jamie uh, Presley so. gets it's worth half a star already just on her own. Oh, whew. yeah. <laughs> and like I said, if you're a child of the 90s, 2000s, fucking everyone is in this movie. So watch it just to do that. That guy, that girl, that guy. Oh, it's Turk. Eric Balfour. <laughs> yes. He got his face cut off and worn by Leatherface in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I just realized fucking Eric Balfour is in the first season of Six Feet Under 2. There's three Six Feet Under cast members in this movie. This was the original casting call. <laughs> Alan Ball was like assistant director or something. All right, Julio. That is Can't Hardly Wait. Arguably, at this point, we're going to be cutting down nearly three hours to hopefully about two, two and a half. So one of the more extensive discussions that has been had about Can't Hardly Wait on the internet, I would wager to bet. But what is on deck next? Up next is our bonus episode for February, picked as usual by one of our patrons. In this case, the aforementioned Chaz Fisher. He has picked Pan's Labyrinth, a fresh movie for us to tackle uh, awesome. As we close February, I've seen it. You've seen it. We've hardly talked about it, Alex. So I, I really don't know how you feel about it. It'll make for an interesting uh, real talk discussion and an interesting contrarian's corner because, you know, this movie is super fresh. There's a lot of holes that I think we can poke in it. <laughs> All right. Pan's Labyrinth is on deck. The first Guillermo del Toro. Yes, I think so. Yeah, we've we've mentioned Hellboy and Blade, I think, a few times. Blade 2, but yeah, this is our first official Del Toro. Could not have possibly more pronounced it like a fucking redneck. <laughs> Guillermo? <laughs> All right, that's what's on deck. We ready to close this out? Let's do it. Get us out of here. As always, we start by giving a thanks to the festive years who provide our opening and closing tracks. They kick us off with Last Stand, take us home with Summer of 99. Be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all festive years needs. Our friend and fellow podcaster, Hans Ruth Gieser, he's the man behind our logo, behind all the graphics on our webpage, our patron page, our merch. Uh, you can contact him on Twitter at Mildemonios, M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S, or you can email him Mildemonios at hotmail.com if you want any graphics or if you want to talk to him about his podcast, Nacion Combi, which is about Peruvian current affairs, or Marginal, which is about economy. Uh, he also has a webpage, Mildemonios.pe, where you can check out his work. Uh, he has links to uh, where you can buy his novels, uh, sci fi, zombie novels, a lot of cool stuff. Also, speaking of crazy parties, and I may have mentioned this at some point during our. 150 episodes uh, <laughs> I went to a party with Hans once and uh, he got into a fight and that's oh, something shit. that it, it's it's one of those he was really drunk and he still laughs about it because it was I guess he got punched and he was it was like the, the scene in the fight club where uh, Brad Pitt's just getting his ass kicked and he keeps laughing uh, <laughs> that's I, I missed the whole thing I, I just heard the story you know I was at the same party but I was like somewhere else and then 
by the time that I saw him, like they were just picking him up from the floor and he was laughing and he was all over. <laughs> but uh, anyway, it's crazy partying with Hans. <laughs> or at least it was back in the Sounds day. Sounds like it. Yeah. Anyway, Hans, thank you for all your support. And thank you to Zoe Perez for the work and help she provides us. If you haven't already, and you're on Facebook, facebook.com slash contrarian prime. Go ahead and give us a like, follow, whatever the hell it is these days. Uh, if you're on Instagram, at Contrarian Prime, give us a follow there. On our Facebook page, Zoe puts together some exclusive video previews of our upcoming episodes. On our Instagram, you'll find videos, interactive graphics, audio clips, a lot of good shit, a lot of competent shit that Julio and I would not be able to do on our own. So, Zoe, we appreciate the work that you do for us. And with all of our thank yous out of the way, that is going to do it for this episode of The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. Oh,